Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Giant Mess. I am your host, Neil Lynch. I am a giant mess. I'm a Giants and Mets fan who loves movies, comedy, TV, and a whole lot more. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about five movies that will relate to season four of Stranger Things, according to Stranger Things writers. I'll give you my recaps of South Park and Always Sunny, my reviews of El Camino and Brightburn, my final thoughts on The Sopranos as we just wrapped up the series, my initial thoughts about Mr. Robot as we just watched the first episode of of season four, and uh, we'll talk about the possible managerial moves that the Mets might make, along with some off-season predictions, the Giants' Week 6 loss to the Patriots, and a preview of the Week 7 game against the Cardinals, along with the impending trade deadline. Ooh. So before we dive into the TV section of the program, uh, I just want to put out a PSA. Maybe it's not a PSA. I was walking Brielle, my daughter, around the neighborhood last night, in a stroller we're walking up a hill it's kind of tough because i haven't worked out in over a year i'm out of shape big time so walking up hills i'm gonna get winded walking up the hill and i'm on the sidewalk and uh, up up above uh you know up front ahead of me is a, a guy who has some kind of well, i want to say a power tool to some something like that that has a wire it's a long cord and it's draped over the sidewalk and it's like you know i'm not gonna go forward and just run over this dude's cord i'm just gonna you know do my thing i'm gonna go around just go into the street for a second come back on the sidewalk and this is the thing when you see someone from a distance it's the worst feeling in the world all kinds of things start running through your head. Like if you just see someone just pops up in front of you, you're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, good to see you. Bye. And it's just, it's a quick interaction. You don't have to think about anything. There are no expectations, no hype. You can go about your day. This one, it's like when you're in the, in the school or in an office uh, environment and there's a long hallway and it's like you can see all the way down the hallway hundreds of yards as a person all the way on the other end and they're walking and they're going to pass you at some point. And it's like, what is this going to be? What, what, what do I say? I mean, I, I, I've already seen them and acknowledged them and they've seen me and acknowledged me. We both made that note in our brain. We still have yards to go, a football field to go before we can actually say anything. So then you start to think about what you're going to say and how the interaction is going to go. Are they going to like me? Are they going to smile? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like too much pressure. And that's what happened here. I saw him as I rounded the bend coming up the hill. And he probably saw me coming up the hill with a stroller. And I said, hi, I gave him the nod and the hi. And he said, hi. And then I go about, go onto the street. Cause I'm like, you don't have to move your cord for us. Like it's a simple in and out procedure. It's a simple, you know, there's no recovery time on this maneuver. It's I go into the street to come out of the street and your cord is unaffected. We go on a, about our lives. And I think he might've been offended by that. And I might add this character straight out of the Sopranos. We've just been watching the Sopranos. We've been binging the, the Sopranos. This guy looks like a Goomba, you know, and he looks like, uh, you know, he's got a power tool and like they just had a storyline, a care, an arc, a plot 
in the Sopranos about power tools. So I got that going around, swimming around in my brain as I'm, as I'm passing by this guy. I say, hi, he says, hi. He looks at my daughter who's wearing jeans, a hooded sweatshirt, purplish sneakers. There are flowers on the hooded sweatshirt. So it's like, we're kind of, I'm, I'm tipping my hat. I'm, 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 I'm letting you know, all right, this is a girl. You know, it's a girl. You don't need to know if it's a boy or a girl, but it's, it's, by the way, she's dressed, you know, she hasn't exactly, it's not a boy transitioning. It's a girl. And I think he kind of was thrown off, didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. And he just said, cute. And I, and I just said, thanks. And I want to walk around his cord. And then from the, the, I mean, the interaction is over. There's no more interaction here. I said, hi. We said, hi. You paid us compliments. said, thanks, blah, blah. That's it. He then yells back at, to my back. Like, I'm beyond him. I'm now going up the street and up the, on the sidewalk. He yells to me, you have a good day now. Now, anywhere else, from anyone else, that's a compliment. It's a nice little, uh, I bid you adieu, a nice farewell. It's a, it's a nice salutation. You know, you're, you're saying, you're, you're hoping for the best. You're wishing for the best. This guy, no way. A guy saying that to another guy in North Jersey? No, that's a death sentence. This, I'm on this dude's hit list now. You have a good day now. And, it, and not said like in a cheery way, just a, it's like, I'm going to murder you. That's exactly the vibe I got from that guy saying that you have a good day now. No, I was having a good day before. Now I'm not going to have a good day. No way. Am I having a good day? I'm guaranteed a bad day because you said you have a good day now. There's no, and I just, I just over the shoulder, just sent it. Yeah. You too. Like what, what, you know, is that what? Cause I didn't run over your cord with my baby stroller. Because I didn't stop and have a conversation because I didn't pay you a compliment back if you paid my baby a compliment. I mean, I don't know the rules around this neighborhood. What the fuck, dude? <sighs> yeah, I'm in my head. I'm always in my head. There's so many people up in here living rent free. It's insane. So that's the that's kind of mental state that I'm in. I'm frazzled. I'm rattled. I have a big decision about my future coming up today on this date that I'm recording. Still haven't made the decision. I'm flip-flopping like John Kerry in the 04 election. Was it 04? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a sandal right now. I'm a flip-flop. I'm going back and forth. What should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? And you can talk yourself into and you talk yourself out of anything. Yes, I know that. I get that. I need someone to tell me what to do. All right. The great, the worst decision is indecision. And I've made the worst decision by not deciding you want to, you want to live. You want to see my indecision at work. Take me to a restaurant that has a menu with multiple pages. We'll be there all day. We'll be there all day. And then you ask the waiter, the waitress, Hey, what do you recommend? And they always recommend the fucking worst item. It's either the most expensive item because they know, oh, well, I'm just going to get you on the most expensive item. I'll get a bigger tip because of it. Or it's something that the, why do waiters and waitresses have the worst taste and preferences? Like, oh, you should try this. And I was like, I wasn't even remotely considering that. 
So I've come up with a, and, and, and you're like, and then you feel bad. Cause it's like, I'm not going to order that. That's awful. But then I have to order it. Cause if I don't order it, I'm saying that your taste sucks, which I just did, which apologies to all waiters and waitresses. I used to be a waiter. So I feel like I have the right to say that <clears throat> it's a joke. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the, the, the way around that is, and that's gets completely off topic. We are completely off topic, whatever you say, you pick the two or three things that you're looking at and you say, what do you recommend between this, this, or this? And then they have to pick of those two or three. I don't need to know the most expensive item. I can have eyes. I can see the dollar amounts. I can do math. I don't need to know your personal taste because they're fucking wacky. You don't like cheese or something. Okay, cool. So I don't know how I got to waiters and waitresses and all that jazz. I don't know how we got there, but we're there. And now we're going here. The five movies that will relate to season four of Stranger Things. This was, I guess, a tweet. I guess the writer's room of Stranger Things has a Twitter account and they tweet out things. And sometimes it can be misleading. Maybe they're misdirecting you, a little red herring action. And then sometimes they give you little nuggets of truth. I'd like to think that these that this tweet was a nugget of truth. These are the five movies that will relate to season four of Stranger Things. So I gave you my recap of uh, season three of Stranger Things back on, I guess it was the first or second episode of this stupid show. Looking forward to season four. We had some theories about season four in that episode. And uh, I think these movies that they're citing kind of confirm what we already suspected after season three ended, especially with the post credit scene. All right, first movie that will... Uh, will give you a little insight into what to expect for season four, the peanut butter Falcon. This is a independent movie. I believe uh, I've heard really good things from people, from critics, and I would love to see it. Um, I don't know if it's available for rent or if it's on Netflix or what, but I do know I do. It's on the list. It's on my list. If I'm Chris Jericho and I have the list, the peanut butter Falcon, you just made the list. Um, this is an adventure story set in the world of blah, blah, blah. That's not important. I think the, the things to focus on when looking at the synopsis of Peanut Butter Falcon is that there's an outlaw on the run, and there's an unlikely coach and ally, and there's a third party that joins them on their journey. So it's an adventure story, outlaw on the run, unlikely coach and ally. So it's a kind of an older adult, and then there's kind of a younger-ish adult kid, and then there's this third party that um, joins them. And it feels a little bit like... Steve Harrington with Dustin and Robin. I feel like they're going to keep that trio together where that adventure is going to go. I don't think that is going to go into the upside down. Maybe they eventually go to the upside down. Their adventure leads them into the upside down to go after 11 or whoever's down there. Uh, Hopper. Um, but so that seems like they're going to continue that storyline, which I think is good. I don't think people are sick of the Steve Harrington and Dustin bromance that we got brewing or that's full bloom right now i think that's going to keep going till the end of time i don't see why you would break that up so that's peanut butter falcon fisher king now i've seen this movie i have not seen this movie but i have seen it in back when it was in blockbuster i mean it came out in 91 so it's been around the world ah, yeah yeah i've seen it and on the shelf in Blockbuster, I've seen it on Netflix. I've seen it and seen it, seen it, seen it. And it's just, <clears throat> I, I don't think I've ever read the synopsis. I just saw the title. I saw Robin Williams kind of like laughing it up with Jeff Bridges on the cover. And I thought, I don't, I don't know why I want to, I don't want to watch this. 
<laughs> didn't read the synopsis. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't hate Robin Williams. I like him. I like Jeff Bridges. I, I, but them just kind of laughing on the cover, and it's the Fisher King, which doesn't really. Uh, neither of those dudes look like kings. Are they wearing a crown? No. So what's the deal here? I think it's like the same as peanut butter falcon. Is there really a falcon covered in peanut butter, or is there a falcon made out of peanut butter? And I'm sure it has to do with, you know, there's some kind of one line in the movie that's so poetic and like moving. It's like it, he was the Fisher King, and then it's like, oh, okay, that's the title, got it. But that's why I've never seen it, and it's it's after reading this synopsis, I feel like an idiot for not reading the synopsis and watching it. After hearing a popular DJ reel against yuppies, a madman carries out a massacre in a popular New York bar. Dejected and remorseful, a DJ strikes up a friendship with a former professor who became unhinged and then homeless after witnessing his wife's violent death in the bar shooting. So the DJ is seeking redemption by helping this man, this professor, uh, in his quest to recover an item that he believes is the holy grail and to win the heart of a woman he loves. So, again kind of adventure-esque there's the item so there's going to be some kind of secret item in season four of stranger things that uh, that this this duo is going to go on a quest to retrieve maybe that's the steve harrington dustin robin triangle dustin's trying to win the heart of a woman he loves he's been dumped by the utah chick the mormon girl who's saying never ending story theme song and there's this item and if he recovers it you know <clears throat> but it's going to be someone seeking redemption which i think harrington did already kind of did that in season two i think but someone's going to lose a loved one boom that's number one and then that that's someone who lost the loved one because of someone else in the crew they're going to pair up and they're going to try and find this item that i guess will unlock the gate to bring Eleven and Hopper out of the, the Upside Down. And, I, and, and you know, you're like, Neil, <coughs> goddamn, you're, you're talking about the Upside Down a lot. How can you be so sure? Well, here's the third movie, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which some might argue is even better than uh, Excellent Adventure. Uh, give it some time. It grows on you. I didn't like it at first when I saw it in the theater. I think it was 91 it came out. Another 91 movie. But uh, Bill and Ted are, are killed by their evil robot doppelgangers. And uh, they find themselves dead and they're trying to outwit the Green Reaper. And when they're dead, I guess they're in like a... They end up going to heaven and to hell maybe, but they're in purgatory most of the time with the Green Reaper who's one of the most outstanding characters in movie history the guy who played the grim reaper in that movie was just phenomenal but that kind of landscape purgatory they had to go into this purgatory type environment this landscape to outwit uh an antagonist who ends up being their friend the grim reaper but you can see the boys enter the upside down and then they have to go through all this this we we don't really we haven't really seen the full potential and power of the upside down yet so i think that could be um 
that could be similar to Bill and Ted's where it's like Bill and Ted have these like kind of flashbacks, but also like they're warped hallucinations, delusions caused by being in hell. And you remember that one scene where they're like, they're going through the different doors and it's all these different childhood memories that were like traumatized them or that were affected them. But they're also kind of twisted in a way that's, uh, makes them scared as shit. So I think that's going to happen uh, in season four, Stranger Things, where the upside down just causes you to see things and experience things, flashbacks, negative emotions, et cetera. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And that is why I think most of season four will take pl- place in the upside down. And then, you know, because Eleven Hopper's there, Eleven's going after Hopper, they get trapped, and then the rest of the gang comes in after them, not as one crew, but as in separate crews. This is an interesting one. You've got mail. Uh, my wife loves this movie. It's pretty good. Pretty good jam. This came out in 98. And Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, before she did all that shit to her face. Uh, they're corresponding. So it's two strangers corresponding over the Internet um, who, without knowing each other in real life, they can't stand each other. But online, they're like in love with each other and, uh, and you know, enamored with each other. And then he finds out who she is, but she doesn't know. And he starts like, blah, 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 blah. So not sure who this could be in Stranger Things. You had the burgeoning relationship between Hopper and Joyce in season three, and everyone's rooting for that. So do you pull a whole Ross and Rachel, we were on a break thing and like she Hopper does something, goes one step too far and Joyce is like, screw this and begins a relationship with this person she doesn't know. Of course, it's the 80s, so there is no Internet, but maybe there's some other avenue there that we're not thinking about where they only talk on the phone, something like that. So that's that one might be the most intriguing movie that relates to season four and uh i do i do like how they how that could play a factor i I do like that a lot last one is uh fifth movie is ordinary people (coughs) (coughs) beth calvin and their other son i haven't seen this at all this came out in 98 so no clue. Beth Calvin and their son Conrad are living in the aftermath of the death of the other son. Conrad is overcome by grief and misplaced guilt to the extent of a suicide attempt. Yikes. He's in therapy. Beth had always preferred his brother as having difficulty being supportive to Conrad. Calvin is trapped between the two trying to hold the family together. Mm, okay. So, I mean, you know, they're hinting, they're tipping their, they're tipping their, their, their signals. You know, we're talking, you know, it seems like that's all the rage now in the MLB playoffs. October baseball is all these pitchers tipping their pitches. It looks like the writers from Stranger Things 4 are tipping their pitches. There's going to be a death, a suicide attempt, and someone trying to hold the family together. My guess is that it has to relate to the Joyce's family with the little guy and uh, the other guy. The bigger kid is dating the girl. Man, I need to get better with names. So those are the five movies. Um, I I like it all. I like it all. I think, uh, you know, th- those are the movies that are influencing the writers. So be it. And I'm looking forward to those storylines in season four. It's going to be a hell of a season. I think it's the last season, too, which, you know, I don't. Yeah, that's fine. 
I don't, you know, you'd, you'd always like to go to five <laughs> seasons because that's, I don't know, the magic number in TV. But I think if you can wrap it up in four, I'm all for it. And then you get spinoffs, maybe. No. All right. Suck South Park. Uh, season 23, episode three. This one's called Shots. And I was so hoping, and I don't think we did, that we would get... Because it's one of my favorite songs of all time, the Little John song, shots, 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 shots. There was a period, and I know I say this every time I hear the word shots, but anytime that song came on, anytime, no matter where I was, I bought shots for anyone who was standing around me, friend, foe, stranger, you were getting a shot. And unfortunately, we didn't get that song in this in this episode. Of course, this is kind of a step back from the previous episode, which I thought was one of their be- their better ones. Band in China. Uh, this one was actually their three hundredth episode, and it, they they made subtle nods to that during the episode with Randy. But you know, bragging about oh, with three hundred, we got to three hundred, three hundred. <laughs> but I think that was that was more of a commentary of like three hundred just doesn't. It doesn't hit like 100 does. When you hit 100, everyone loses their shit. It's the 100th episode. And I guess they went all out for the 200th episode, but then it's like you can tell that they're saying like, oh, it's a 300th episode and no one cares. <laughs> so why should we do a big thing for it? And that was kind of like Randy Marsh, like the part of them, Matt and Trey being like, uh, we want to celebrate 300, but like, does anyone care? Like Randy puts on, puts out a commercial bragging about how he hit 300 and integrity farms and how he has a parade and like everyone's watching. They're just kind of like, Oh, and it's that, that almost feels like Randy is like what, you know, what South park, I guess could have the road that South park is going down or could have gone down. And they they're saying, see, like, I don't think anyone cares about 300, but that's just my own interpretation. Bruh. This was also a, a comment had commentary about a vaccination, anti-vaxxers and whatnot. Uh, Cartman has to get a shot and he squeals like a pig and, and, and runs out of the room. And um, You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think this, it was an okay episode for, for being like a milestone episode 300, obviously it didn't like have the huge impact that uh, 100 or 200 did. Um, there was a brief moment where, so Sharon Marsh is mad at Randy. Randy's wife is mad at Randy because he's done this deal with the Chinese government and, uh, you know, completely ignoring the fact that the government is using his product to plant it on protesters to, to arrest them. And so, um, while that's going on, Cartman, Cartman's mom is kind of being tested because, you know, she, she wants to be a good mom, but she also wants to give her boy the shots and, but the boy doesn't want the shots. And so it ends up, uh, they try to ambush Eric in his, in his room, all the parents. Cause they're like, we're, we're a community. Like if one of us doesn't get the shot none of us have the shot, that kind of thing. And, uh, that doesn't work. So they ended up hiring a pig wrestler named big mesquite Murph, which, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. 
this one, Big Mesquite Murph, I feel like they were trying to, to they gave him the kind of gravitas and the spotlight to become like, this is going to be a new character and he's going to be funny and like, you you know, whatever. And it's it just didn't, I don't know, it didn't really hit. I do like that they turned it, the whole anti-vaxxing vaxxer battle into like a rodeo so like all the kids that are not immunized with shots are running around like pigs and like they have to have these wranglers catch them so the doctor can give them the shot very clever i also thought that uh cartman's mom was gonna hook up with randy when they're like they're there and they're smoking up and they're like commiserating like cartman over eric and the shots and randy over you know his partner um having a disagreement with his partner and i I thought like oh my god are they really gonna go down this route like they're gonna have cartman's mom hook up with randy's with uh with stan's dad whoa the fireworks that would come from that like just all the conflict and the and no they didn't go down that road at all (laughs) so that's just my uh my porn addled brain in full motion uh but what Cart- Cartman's mom says, like, you know, your partner, you need to apologize to your partner. And Randy's like, all right, yeah, you're right. And then he, you think he's going to go apologize to Sharon, and he apologizes to Tally, his business partner. And uh, eventually, um, Randy renounces the deal with the Chinese government. So maybe there's some fallout from that. And then the uh, the denouement, the, uh, the climax for Cartman's mom's, Plot line, storyline is that she ends up feeling bad for Eric, as she always does, and rescue runs into the rodeo ring to save Eric, and she ends up getting stuck with the needle. And I guess the 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 running gag in this is like they don't <laughs> they say if you get these shots, you you're more inclined to become artistic, not autistic. That was the big <laughs> gaffa is that at the end, Carmen's mom gets stuck with the needle and she becomes artistic. You, Eric walks in on her painting and he's like, no. So it was kind of a, you know, it was a, not as, you know, not as great as the previous one. It's hard to top that one. Um, but they are, I guess they might set up, they could set up something uh, set up something interesting with, with China moving forward, or maybe they just completely drop that storyline. Cause that's what TV does to you. They get you all hot and bothered and then just drop you like a sack of potatoes. Always sunny. We had D day. So I feel like I've seen every single episode of always sunny. And there've been so many episodes of always sunny. I think there's like, Oh, I want to say hundred and 30 plus 136 maybe i've seen just about everyone i'm confident in saying that and i just completely forgot that there this title this episode is called d day and it's basically like it's d's day so <clears throat> she can get the crew the gang the rest of the gang to do whatever they she wants for a 24 hour period they can't complain if they do it extends the time that she gets to have control over them i didn't I completely forgot that there was a Mac day, I guess, 10 years ago in 2009, where Mac got uh, everyone to do what he wanted to do. Couldn't tell you a single thing about that episode, um, which is sad. My memory down the turlet. But uh, so this one was written by Megan Gans, who's formerly of The Onion, also wrote for Community. 
which is a pretty good show, and Modern Family, which, I mean, I know it keeps winning all kinds of awards. I haven't seen a single episode. It's directed by Pete Chapman, who directed episodes of Blackish Insecure and The Last OG. The Last OG, I watched a couple episodes. Insecure and Blackish, I have not seen. Uh, I guess that makes me racist. The guys are in the final preparation stage for an unknown scheme when D excitedly enters to inform them today's D-Day. The guys have to do everything she wants without complaint. So the guys, we don't know what the scheme is for the majority of the episode, and that's the punchline. Ends up being the punchline that the setup is unknown scheme. Punchline is, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. But uh, while they're under control D, they figured out that they they should be allowed one poop break. Um, each guy should be allowed one poop break. And during that poop break, they will carry out their own mission to succeed in the scheme that we don't know about. What I, I mean, the thing that I love is when, whenever Dennis does stretches to warm up or something, he does that old school stretch you did as a kid where you try and see how far your legs go out to the side. Like you try and as a guy, it's, it's, pretty intense as a guy because it's like am i gonna split down the middle is like am i gonna like is my nutsack gonna tear in half like that's the the main concern there but i love that that's like his go-to stretch to warm up and like to see the other guys doing it (laughs) like okay these are a bunch of children understood very nice um of course the first poop break is from charlie um who heads up heads back to the high school where he was a janitor for a little bit. And then he has that kind of awkward interaction with, I guess it's the nurse. I thought it was the, the current janitor as uh, he's trying to make a phone call from the nurse's phone or something to tell her that her child's sick or something. I, I kind of, I kind of browned out during this part of the episode. Um, but you know, there's a bunch of jokes about the kids and like, you know, kind of pedophilia type jokes um, that might've gone on for too long. He'd say, Charlie, love you. But next poop break is Mac and Frank. They go at the same time, which is weird. But they're dressed as two of these uh, characters who are racist. One's Asian, one's uh, black. And uh, Dennis sends them to the valet station to intercept uh, their target's car. Um, and they realize they won't be able to take off all their makeup and put it back on. So Frank is dressed in blackface and... Uh, Mac is dressed in, I guess you call it yellow face, which seems pretty, pretty, pretty raw. So, and the, 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 the running gag with Frank in this episode is like the, someone said, I think Dennis said the world is your oyster and Frank comes back with, no, the, the world is your clam. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, clams are delicious. Oysters are disgusting. And of course, Frank ends up getting a hankering for clams and eats a shit ton of clams and then ends up (laughs) barfing on himself. And, uh, the target at the valet station. I know a lot of people, the, I was reading through some of the user reviews on IMDb and I think a lot of people were upset that they're still leaning on brown face, black face, yellow face to, to do jokes, you know, some, 10 years after it was considered somewhat acceptable, I guess, by society. And, uh, yeah, it just feels a little unnecessary. I feel like they could have probably done without it. Um, I don't know. I mean, you think about Tropic Thunder and Robert De Niro, uh, Robert De Niro, Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder and like him being able to do comedy with blackface, you know, 
it's a tough spot. I think they're, they, they've evolved so much now that they don't, they don't need to do it. And I think a lot of people took issue with it. I, I mean, I'm not up in arms about it. I think it was, could have maybe been handled a little bit better. I'm not saying completely steer clear of that, but maybe been handled a little bit better. I don't know. I think they did kind of touch on it a little bit like this feels wrong or something like that. But you know, a lot of their comedy is born out of awkward situations and hot button topics and whatnot. So I don't want to, you know, you don't want to start censoring them and start, you know, inhibiting their creative freedom because then you end up with, with shit. So I don't know, but the, the, the poop break, the last poop break is from Dennis. And this is the, this is the part of the episode where it's like, it really takes off and becomes one of the better ones. So they're bird watching. And of course the, the main slur or put down that the guys toss a D repeatedly is that she's a bird. And so she takes them bird watching to entice them to say you were a bird D and then she gets another 24 hours. So they're bird watching and the guys are going along with it. And then uh, Dennis is like, I have to take a shit. And so D's like, all right, well, why don't you take up makeup first? And he's like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't wear makeup. And she's like, no, nah, just, uh, we all know you wear makeup and hairspray. So just take all that out. Take all that. We're, we're going to be free. You don't need that anymore. Just be yourself. And so Dennis is like, uh, all right, now I'll go through with it. So the, the, the last part of the plan is that there's bar or restaurant and they see their target. The target is a politician, a female politician. And Dennis's plan is to seduce her and distract her while the guys go into her house and set her alarm clock back an hour so that she misses this important vote on a huge issue uh, on the ballot because she's the only one who's opposing this issue on the ballot. And so we see, Dennis, we see Dennis without the makeup and without the hairspray. And he looks, he looks awful. I mean, you know, looks aren't important. I teach that to my daughter every day. Looks are not important. Okay. You're beautiful inside and out, but Dennis looked like shit. Okay. I mean, his hair was just all over the place. He's balding. He's got like bags under his eyes, pale. He just looked like a completely different person. And it, and it dramatically affected how he behaved. Like when he goes up to hit on the politician, you know, he's, he's saying like, you know, oysters or clams or like, hi, don't be scared. <laughs> and then, um, of course saying like, uh, you know, we can still have sex. I just have to put another man's face on. That was like, that was the clincher. Um, and of course you find out that, uh, the scheme was to distract this female politician and, and they tune into this news broadcast that's announcing the results. And it's, and it's, and it's a referendum, I guess, referendum, memorandum, referendum on, Peeing in public, like, should it be allowed? Should it not be allowed? And of course, without her vote, uh, it passed and it's all because all thanks to D. So D was the one who was ultimately bringing it all together and, and making it happen. And, um, of course the final punch is the cuckoo clock that she brings in to signify when the start and the end of D day are, um, goes off and so all the guys are like yes it's over and they start going in on her and she's like actually i set the clock back on this i set the you know alarm back on this so this is actually an hour early you guys are an hour early we got another day so good to see d get some get her uh get her day in the sun to see her actually win to see her in control i liked it um there were some you know there were some you know 
people weren't very fond about that. Like it still focused on the guys, despite it being D day, it should have been solely focused on D and instead we're kind of continuously checking in on the guys. Uh, but that's true to the show. I mean, that's what the show has been and, and was. So maybe there's another instance down the road where they do this and, and, D, and, it's, and it's only an episode on D. Um, but I still think it, it you know, that, that wasn't a, that wasn't a major detraction. So uh, thumbs up. Still not as good as uh, thunder gun. Uh, but you know, not terrible. It's, it's incredible to see, you know, I was looking on Wikipedia. It's incredible to see how the ratings have dropped. And I, I think this is not just for this show. It's just for all shows across the board. You know, looking back in like the late 2000s, so like 10 years ago, they had like almost 2 million people tuning in. Um, the official ratings were like two plus million people were tuning in. And now it's like, I think 300 to 400,000. And, but I don't think that takes into consideration the fact, like I don't watch it live. Most times I watch it on demand the day after or whenever I have free time. So I don't know if that, if that is taken into consideration, but I find it hard to believe that it's dropped off that much. I mean, you still have a ton of always sunny fans. So thankfully FXX has not, doesn't give a shit about ratings. They're like, this is a great show. <laughs> We're going to keep this on forever. But I think this might be the last season, which would be a goddamn travesty. I hope it, I hope that's not the case. I'd like to see them go to 20. I think they could do it. I don't see why they, why they wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, the, the episodes that they're putting out are so all you need is them, you know, maybe a cameo here and there, but it's just the gang. Just have the gang in the bar doing stupid shit. And they've done that a couple times with, I think they call them bottle episodes. It feels like almost most episodes of Sunny are bottle episodes where it's just the one setting. It's the four or five of them. And we're just going to explore that setting with whatever ideas they got going on. I can't imagine that the budget's out of control. You just, uh, you, I mean, they, they should be paid and they're probably not paid enough, but so sad comedy. We got to reward these people. All right. So as I mentioned, we finished up the Sopranos, all 86 episodes in the bag, all six seasons. Uh, last week I reviewed basically what was the 2006 half of season six. And now I'm going to just kind of go over the, the final second half, the 2007 half of uh, season six. Um, I last week I talked about how, you know, they're trying to make turn Bobby into a tough guy and I'm not buying it. And then of course, <laughs> 2007 rolls around and Bobby's beating the shit out of Tony. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. Maybe I underestimated this guy all along. And eventually towards the end of the season, I mean, he's the number three and you know, I understand that's, that's most of that is probably Janice is doing. Cause Janice was just in Tony's ear all the time. And some of it was Bobby just stepping up and being like, yeah, I'll take more responsibility. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. I'm not just a driver. I'm not just this or that. I'm not just a fat schmo schlub. Although it's, you know, as much as they've been pushing him forward, they, it, him being a train model train enthusiast just completely just ruins it all for me. <laughs> like him wearing that stupid engineer's hat. Uh, no offense to any train enthusiasts out there, but I don't know. There's something about that that just doesn't sit well with me. Uh, yeah, you had to know when they went to Janice and uh, 
at Bobby's cabin or whatever. Like I thought initially that something bad was going to happen to the kid because you have that Tony telling the story like out of the blue. And I think he was, he does these things to get under Janice's skin. Whenever Janice seems happy or comfortable, he's like, no, thanks. I don't like this. I'm going to get, I'm going to ruffle your feathers. When Tony out of the blue brings up that story about the kid who was like, no one was watching the kid and the, and it was a party and the kid drowned in the pool. And of course you're right on the lake and there's right there is Bobby and Janice's daughter, Nika. And you think, okay, so Nika's going to drown that lake. That's the only thing in my mind right now. Didn't happen, but it's like, that's a nice little seed that they planted. You know, sometimes it's, you know, I, I get upset when they plant a seed and it doesn't come to fruition, but that's the seed. It's like, you know, I don't want to see it come to, come to, come to be, but that fight between uh, Bobby and, and Tony, whew, you could tell that, that, I mean, you could tell like when, whenever they're like, yeah, more booze. Yeah. More wine. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, here it comes. Cause it's not like, you know, a typical party where it's like, we're just going to drink more and have fun. And at least most parties that I go to, you drink more and you just have more fun. Like there's almost nothing bad happens rarely happens but like this crew you can tell like more more remy more of this and it's just like okay something bad gonna happen and it did and you know bobby is a bigger guy i mean i know he's all fat but like he's bigger than uh tony and of course tony cannot accept the fact that he got his his hat handed to him by bobby and that kind of sticks with him uh moving forward Johnny Sack, Jesus, that's got to be the worst. I mean, you're finally the boss. You're you're the head of the family, and then you're like, uh, and then you get pinched. It feels like he was maybe the head of the family for like a year, maybe, maybe that's not long enough. But I think it was like a year he was the head of the family, and then you know he gets pinched because of a an informant, and then oh, you're in jail. How's about some cancer? And of course, the guy, one of the custodial guys, Janet or whatever, happens to be a former doctor who's in prison because he murdered he murdered his wife in a crime of passion. And so Johnny, you know, the, the initial doctor gives him a prognosis of three months to live. And you can hear my throat bubbling. That's amazing on this mic. Wow. So this doctor who killed his wife is like giving Johnny Sack advice, like looking through his files and like, no, 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 you probably have like years to live. They just say that to cover their ass. And so it gives Johnny Sack hope. And then of course he dies like <laughs> two episodes later. He's like, oh, I'm, I got years. Let me just uh, smoke a few ciggies, a few stoves while I got some time. And then of course he's, uh, he's goner. I was like, whoa. Of course, uh, my throat is bubbling yet again amazing it's a volcano down there it's a volcano it's a goddamn volcano so cleaver premieres the the movie that uh chris was producing with tony exec producing and it's the ring meets the godfather and we see some footage from it and it's like okay this is <laughs> this is like a a b horror flick that could be kind of campy and fun. I mean, I, you know, if it were actually released, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind if there's nothing else on, put it on and get toasted and just laugh. A la Friday the 13th. 
of course, uh, Carmella, after watching it, has mixed emotions because it, you know, the, the the main character played by Danny Baldwin is like very, very close, spot on Tony. And so she starts thinking, well, OK, you've had an affair with an Asian woman and, you know, she's basically everything that happened in the movie. She thinks happened in real life, which not exactly true. But then it gets in Tony's head. So Carmella plants a seed in Tony's head and then Tony gets to be. He he's he's starting to think, OK, the things that are happening in the movie could happen to me because it's produced by Chris, who's, you know, has always been kind of a volatile character. Can't really pin him down. Um, reactionary. So is this like, am I looking into my future? And that's the beginning and the end for Christopher, really, which, you know, fucking Christopher. I've been saying since the jump, I do not like this guy. I didn't like the way he treated Adriana. He has very few redeeming qualities. He's just a complete asshole to everyone around him. And I understand I, you know, I can relate to him in certain respects because of he, because of respect, he wants respect and he wants to be respected and he's constantly getting put down and made fun of and made to do all these other things. But it's like, Christopher, dude, all these other guys had to do it too. Like this is part of the whole ritual. The whole tradition is that you got to do all the dirty work when you're on lower on the, the totem pole and you keep doing it and you, and you, and you take it like a champ and you don't bitch and moan. Then you move up the, the ladder, you know, but I can understand he sees someone like Bobby move up the chain because of nepotism, because he's Tony's brother-in-law and, and he sees Polly constantly fucking up and not getting punished. Like Chris gets punished when he fucks up and it's, it's, it wears on him and that combined with the fact that he's an addict and he can't control himself, you know, but like, you know, I just, when I was starting to feel <coughs> for Christopher, I was just starting to feel for him just a little bit because it was like Polly kind of Polly fucks him over with the power tool thing because his, his wife, his father-in-law has this uh, hardware store where the power tools that they got from the, uh, the, the Cubans or, or whatever in Florida when they went, that took that trip to Florida and again, they hooked up that power tool deal. So all those, these free power tools are going to the, the Chris's father-in-law to sell at a tremendous profit margin. I guess they're not free, but reduced cost. And then Polly's guys are stealing from, you know, his father-in-law. And so that, at that point <laughs> he hits a, he hits a wall and I was, you know, it was tough. Cause it's like, man, I watched you beat the shit out of Adriana for so long that you were such a monster. And then you turn around and you're like a saint, an angel to Kelly, your new wife, who just came out of the blue, by the way, who's just like, oh, this was my girlfriend. And now you're my wife. It's like, Jesus, we just had this long period with and that, And that happens in life. But it's it is nuts when it happens, when you see people that have dated for five, seven, 10 years, they break it off. And then like two years later, they're married. It is, a, it is like a, an eye opening experience, but I've seen it happen so many times. So I can't really argue with it, but it's just like from a TV show standpoint, it's just like, where did this person come from? 
And of course, even when he's happy and soft with Kelly and treating her like great, he's still got a gumar and cheating with the the real estate agent who was kind of almost cheating with Tony. So then that gets on, under Tony's skin. And Chris is like kind of reluctant to bring it up to him. And then he, he finally does. And Tony gives that whole like, oh, yeah, everything's fine, but I'm going to fucking kill you. Look. Uh... And there's a, I mean, there was the stretch where you think that Tony's going to whack Polly and you're like, what? Like, this is what, you know, Tony gets shot. He's in the hospital. It's traumatic. You think it's life changing. You think it changes the way you look at life. And then he comes out and, he, and now he's just suspicious of everyone and just whacking his whole entire crew. It's like, oh boy, you know? That's tough. And that was, the, I mean, that's, that's, this is the downfall of Tony, this second half of the season. Cause it's like he, there were one of two roads and he took the worst road. It's like you had a life changing experience. You now realize how much you love your wife and need her in your life, how much you appreciate your kids, how much you appreciate everyone just being alive. You appreciate it all. And same with Phil too. Phil, Phil Leotardo has, which, you know, I don't like Phil at all either. But the fact that he went to the to the hospital and was like, hey, this is weird. And the doctor's like, no, 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 It's just this gas. And of course, it's a friggin heart attack. And I thought he was going to like punch the, the doctor out, you know, for saying that, because it's like, just don't be so arrogant in your diagnosis. My dad was a doctor and I, I doubt he was ever like that. I just don't think he would ever be like that. But, you know, the fact that Phil had the heart attack and that's a life changing moment. And he's still he like it was it's it almost like it. And I guess this is true to the way people are in, in real life is like they have that period afterwards where they're grateful to be alive and they claim that their perspective has changed and their whole outlook and attitude has changed. And then you, you it's no, it hasn't. It's like you're back to your old ways, vengeance and revenge and avenging and. All kinds of venge. <sighs> I think it's hilarious and ironic that Tony, Tony's business is taking advantage of gamblers. And then he himself falls into that curse and falls into that uh, poisonous vice of gambling his fucking life away. Oh boy. AJ proposed to Blanca, who's very attractive. Uh, and she's like, uh, okay. And you're like, yeah, yeah this is not going to happen. I also love how, and of course that sends him into a tailspin because it's probably the best sex of his life. If we're being honest. I mean, I don't know that they had too many moments where it's like, this is so romantic. It was like, mm, they had a couple scenes, but mostly they just had real hot sex. And so I think that's what he was so bummed about is like, I miss that hot sex. And so he goes into a tailspin, uh, tries to commit suicide. Tony saves him. And then he's put in a psych ward, probably, where he meets a girl who's a junior in high school who's into modeling. Uh, th that whole... <laughs> it's, it's interesting that they would focus more on AJ and his, his decline than they did Meadow at all. I just thought that was like, what? 
I don't know if it had to do with Jamie Lynn Sigler's like schedule. I don't know if she had a lot of other products going on, but the fact that you spent so much goddamn time on Finn and Meadow, them fighting and clashing about their future and him proposing and it's a big deal about the engagement and that like they're moving and he's going here and she's trying to de- she has the debate and conflict of like should I go should I stay and the parents being like you gotta stay you can't go and then it's just like one episode it's just like yeah we're no longer together like what like what the fuck happened <laughs> I just I don't know just to not see that through it just feels like a mistake because then from that point on meadow's just kind of there it's just like oh i might do med school might do law school and then like they had the one storyline where coco from the new york family like uh comes on to her like threatens her at that shop and then tony goes uh ape shit on him which if you get curb stomped you're dead right the fact that you don't die after a curb stomp makes it that much more just gruesome. Like if you get curb stomped and you die immediately, it's like, oh uh, man, you get curb stomped. But like when apparently you get curb stomped and you live and you, oh, I can't even, that gives me the willies, dude. Of course, uh, Vito's kid. Yeah, so like Meadow and Finn, that's just gone. Like we don't see Finn at all the rest of the series. So maybe it was like he did something else or he had a falling out with uh, whoever, but like he's just gone, not a factor at all. And she just goes, I mean, she was engaged and like they didn't show any of the pain of that breakup or that fallout, but yet we could see AJ's pain and fallout from being engaged to a girl they've been seeing for like, I don't know, a year. Maybe bizarre, bizarre choice. Um, and then he tries to commit suicide. <sighs> I mean, I've been there, you know, not trying to commit suicide, but I've been there where it's like you look, you look around and you're like, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point? I've, I've said that multiple times and, I, and it's sad because, you know, at least he's saying it at age 20 and I'm saying it, you know, at age 38. What's the point, dude? Seriously. <laughs> uh, Christopher and Polly making a lot of money selling stolen tools. Yep. We went over that. Tony takes Christopher test for not being around much, which, you know, yeah, I mean, he's in a tough spot. He, anytime he hangs out with the crew, they're doing drugs or drinking, and he's just around all the things that he can't be around. And then Polly, Polly ends up putting him down. And then the person that doesn't deserve any of the pain or suffering or anything, JT, the writer, is the one who gets fucked. Like, come on. That's just heartbreaking. The fact that he's a recovering addict, he's trying to get out of it. It looks like he's doing well. He's got a Law and Order episode that he's working on. And Chris comes to him for for help. And, you know, JT's like, dude, I mean, you've been like a complete, and he doesn't say this word for word, but you can tell he's like saying, dude, you've been a complete asshole to me. I cannot be involved with you. You were in the mafia. You're going to. I'm going to end up dead because of you. And he turns out he's right. You know, Chris just turns around, blasts him in the forehead. It's like, dear God. 
And at that point, you're like, man, I want to see every all the feelings that have built up, all the emotional capital that have built up in favor of Christopher over the past episode or two, where it's like he's trying to do this home life, he's trying to be on the straight and narrow, trying to he's rid himself of the real estate agent who is also an addict. He's finally on the right path and he's trying to reconcile Tony and say, Hey, like I can't be around this stuff. You have to understand that. And Tony being, and Tony, which, and, and this is where, you know, I thought it would go differently is like, you would think after he, him being shot, he would take the other route and say, you know what? Yes. Be with your family. The work will be there. Don't worry about it. But the fact that Tony's gambling debts have piled up and he's got all this other bullshit hanging over him has made him lean harder on his earners. And so he knows that Chris can't, pull back so but then he shoots jt and you're like ah fuck chris god damn you christopher and you wanted the worst thing you want the worst to happen to him and of course what happens it's such an it's such a like ugh, not fulfilling death and i know that sounds barbaric but it's like i want to see the worst happen to christopher and instead he gets high and he's driving tony and they he's in the wrong lane he swerves and they crash and you know christopher is choking on his blood he can only breathe through his nose and so tony just plugs his nose and lights out for christopher and you're like that's that's how he goes and logically it makes sense for tony because it's like this is an easy out you know, I just say he was high on drugs, which he was. They'll find drugs in his system and we can pin that on the accident and his death. And I think they did a great job of trying to show Tony coming to grips with it and, and justifying what he did. He repeatedly said at the funeral and, and, and in other places, you know, I saw a tree branch go through the child seat. And what if the baby had been in there? And this one is like, okay, so yes, you were right in killing Christopher. I mean, it was, it was coming to an head. It was going to happen. It was just like, that's the way Christopher goes out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now the way Phil goes out. Okay. That one was a little more, you know, quenched my bloodthirst, if you will. Cause it's like popped in the skull in front of your family and then i mean he's he's basically dead so he does, probably doesn't feel it anyway but the fa- <laughs> the fact that the car was still in drive because the wife you know was concerned and runs out of the car and then runs over his and crushes his skull it's like oh my god with his grandkids in the car <laughs> that was like you know it's fictional i've heard it's based on true stories so you know no offense to everyone who is based on but like that's just got to be one of the top most gruesome deaths in this show's history and chris doesn't even make the list just he just gets he just plugs his nose and goes on to the great beyond after all the shit he's done and paulie for the long time, you think Tony's going to whack Polly and you're like, this is getting out of hand. Like you're, you're now decimating your own crew because of what you think they're turning on you and working with the New York family or the feds or, you know, your paranoia is that is just consuming you. And the think that he was very close to doing it on that boat, looking at that knife. And, and Paul is just like, I'm going to get whacked now because I talk too much, which yeah, you know, I can, you can sort of see it from Tony's perspective. This dude talks way too much and he mentions way too many things that can get back to the wrong people and, and incriminate in us. So, but it's also like Tony, like Paulie's not, doesn't have Alzheimer's or dementia, like junior, you know, he's not that dumb. 
he says some things here and there, but I mean, look how long this guy has survived. And lo and behold, you know, when the credits roll in the last uh, episode, Paulie's still out there cranking away, loving life. And probably, I mean, if you look at things, Sills in a coma. And it looks like Polly is probably the guy in charge. I don't know who else would be in charge. They, they whack Bobby at the train store, which is like, oh my God, so fitting. Um, and then they, they pop Sill when he's coming out of the strip club. The bing. And he's in a coma. So, I mean, Sill, it's possible Sill comes out of the coma that he's number one and Polly's number two. But we saw what, when Sill, I mean, I, when Sill was intern boss, it was not. I don't, I thought he did all right. I thought he did pretty good, you know? Um, but I think the thing that held him back and that will probably hold others back from fully endorsing him was the fact that he had the asthma thing. And like the fact that he couldn't get to his asthma, he's knocked out and it's like, we got to worry about this all the time. So it's, it's a weakness and you can't have perceived weakness, which is like basically the whole story is the whole, you know, theme of the show. You cannot have weakness. You got to show strength in, in whatever you do. Like Vito being gay, perceived as a weakness. <laughs> oh, Dwight, the agent Dwight Harris. I'm very interested in that character. I feel like they maybe sh could have or should have explored that more. I know they already have so many characters and so many storylines that they have to deal with, but Agent Dwight Harris was very interesting because he's always like hanging out the store. You can tell he does not like being part of this counter-terrorist unit because he's it's causing friction with his home life with, with his wife and like he almost it's almost like he wants to be part of the mafia and tony keeps on shutting him down telling him to fuck off and it's like tony i think if you position this the right way like maybe he would come on board the thing that i did not understand completely is when he finally gives up phil's location uh to tony's crew he's laying in bed and then another a woman comes in and gets dressed and she looks like she's an agent too. So he's like cheating on, that's not his wife, right? Like he's cheating on his wife with this other agent. And the, it, the female agent is possibly the one who had Phil's location. That makes more sense now. Cause he kept saying my guy, my guy, my guy. And it turns out maybe his guy was the girl. And then she looks at him like pissed. Like you just told him, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, but I got that sweet tang. <laughs> um, I mean, the trip to Las Vegas, I, that was just bizarre. That was like, okay. Like, yeah, and I get it. You want to get away. Um, but it's just like, I'm going to call someone and then I'm gone. And they didn't show any of him like explaining that to Carm or anything like that. It's just like shits and shambles here. I'm just going to run away from it. And then. So he did, and, and maybe this was the first show to do it. So like, cause looking back, you're like, so many shows have done this where like, we're going to go into the wilderness and to the desert and we're going to take a drug that opens our mind and makes us see things clear. And it's like, if the Sopranos were the first ones to do it. Okay. I get it. Like, this is a great show, but if, if not, it feels, into, it feels like cliche or trope but maybe that's because it was the first one to do it. And every other show has copied that in which case, okay, I get it. Sopranos. Yeah. But you know, he goes to like this, another woman who I do not remember at all, who apparently was Chris's friend who I don't think we've ever seen. And we're, they treat it like we, we, we should know her. And of course, Tony ends up banging her and then, and they end up doing peyote and going, and he wins a shit ton of money on the drugs. 
And then they go to the desert and he takes and he's like looking at the sun and he yells, I get it. And then it's like roll credits. And you're like, what the fuck is this shit? You get what, dude? I don't know. I don't think they really. I don't think they really got it. <laughs> that wasn't. I mean, that the one episode is it Blue Comet or Second Coming? Blue Comet. So I guess yeah, the last two episodes, like the beginning of the end, and the Blue Comet, when it's like okay, shit is hitting the fan. They took out Bobby. They're gonna take. They take. They've almost taken out Sill. And like Tony's next, and it's like they're on the run. And I'm like okay, nice. This is going. Uh, this is going great. And uh, but then, what I understand is like they had that big sit down organized by a third neutral third party at a neutral location. It was Tony. Um, I guess it was still and Bobby with a uh, butch maybe. And that other guy like that, the, the New York crew, the, the other people in the New York crew do not seem intimidating at all. <laughs> like that one fat guy with the glasses. You're like, who the hell is this guy? Like a mastermind criminal mastermind. Like how do we respect this guy? Um, like say, you know, I know still and Bobby are not exactly like, you know, beasts, but like, you know, Bobby has shown that he can take on Tony and, and be a physical presence in addition to stepping up, you know, not being such a softy, you know, when he tried to, uh, take down Polly and he's like standing up for himself and having a backbone. Sill, you've seen some leadership qualities there and he's got that look like, you know, kind of pout that's, uh, like, okay, like this guy, and you've seen him whack some people, you know, he took care of Adriana, he took care of the, uh, whoever that one random random guy was i have no idea who that guy was it was just like there have been some misgivings and then it just chokes him out with piano wire it's like all right okay cool i don't know who that is i don't know how he affects anything so we've seen like how powerful or strong like bobby and silk can be in that in tony's crew we have not seen that from like butch or like this other guy i mean yeah so butch was like tagged along when others were shooting at the uh the leading the acting bosses. Um, but I don't know. And then they organized like this whole deal. And it's like, it seems like there's a truce. They worked hours and hours, hours on this truce. And then they still pop like Tony's crew still pops Phil, which makes me think, was it a miscommunication or they just didn't trust the New York side of the family. And so that's why when this famous last scene comes around and they do, it's a kind of a rhythmic, timing with the shots so it's like uh whenever someone enters into the restaurant the the bell goes off and tony looks up so it happens once with carmela happens again with aj where you see the guy walking in front of him and that's when my wife i've seen this you know unfortunately i've seen this scene you know back in 07 when it when it first hit youtube or whatever and it like ripped and was uploaded to youtube uh big mistake by me um, but everyone was talking about it. It's like, I gotta, I gotta see it, even though I have zero context. So the bell goes off a second time. You see, it's a guy. And that's when my wife gasps. She's like, who's that? And you're like, and I'm like, <laughs> and then AJ is obviously behind him and sits down. And then the third time is, is supposed to be Meadow because Meadow is having coming late. And, uh, she's, um, trying to park her car. And of course that's when the screen goes black. And, and you know, the theory is, 
that Tony got whacked by the guy who went into the bathroom, who like was at the bar, sitting at the bar, got up, went to the bathroom. Um, and then Tony got whacked, which is probably what happened. But it's just interesting that like, yeah, another reason not to get into that fucking life. It's like, yeah, there's some upsides. I guess you get free blowies from strippers and there's all kinds of drugs at your disposal. And, you know, it's like easy money. But then all of a sudden it's like you're jail or death, premature death. Like it's going to happen. Like where the two families sit down and we have a truce and then your boss gets capped and that boss gets capped after a truce. It's like, okay. So, and that's that. And I, and I realize now like Polly's prostate cancer. That's another storyline that just like, I mean, that's a huge ordeal to go through. It's a major diagnosis. It's a major battle. And they're just like, Oh, bone, I'm fine. It's like, what? That's prostate cancer. I mean, you've seen cancer take Johnny Sack's life. It's not, it's not, it's, you know, for them to kind of just wax over or gloss over, it just felt, I don't know. There were a lot of storylines like that, but I mean, I guess, I guess the major point is, um, you know, it's Tony's story. And, you know, it, I did find it interesting that they were talking about therapy and uh, going back to like Jen, uh, Jen Melfi, his therapist, and how in her talks with Elliot, he reveals that there's this new study that therapy actually makes the criminals worse. Like if you are a criminal and you have that kind of mentality, the therapy that you go through, it actually... Uh, enables you as a criminal because you get to, uh, it's almost like exercise or training you to be a better criminal because you're able to manipulate the person in front of you on a recurring basis. I I mean, yeah, I guess it could make sense if you have, if you have that chemical makeup and you just, you have that type of disposition, like therapies talking it out, it's not going to do shit. So I kind of agree with it because I've been in therapy and you feel like you're seeing the same thing over and over again. And you feel like the therapist is just giving you the same bullshit. And I don't know that you feel like you're better because of it. I mean, I didn't go for that long, less than a year, but it was just like, you know, what are we going anywhere with this? Isn't there a pill you can give me (laughs) to make it all better? But no. So, yeah, that's Tony's story. Of course, Jen Melfi decides to stop seeing him because of that theory. You know, she's seen him. I mean, I I guess he's having these real emotions, these real feelings, these real thoughts. But, uh, you know, she can tell like he's not getting better. And so as much as she wants the business, and I think a lot of doctors and a lot of medical health professionals do this from a business standpoint, which I disagree with fundamentally because it goes against your oath, but insisting that you need to keep doing something to make you better, knowing full well, does not make you better. Like, why are you diagnosing a fucking MRI or an ultrasound when I've already told you I've had multiple MRIs and ultrasounds and they've revealed nothing at a thousand dollars a clip. Thanks doc. So (laughs) just a little bitter. So that's the Sopranos. Yeah. So, um, greatest show of all time. Final verdict. No, I'm going to say no. I will put it in my top 10 for sure. And I'd be willing to put it in my top five, top one. 
And I've been thinking about this. I mean, I, you know, you, you've seen this. I mean, months and months I've been watching this show and I've been trying to figure it out. And and, and I think I've come to the conclusion that it, it did set up, unless I'm mistaken, and unless there was a show before this that had done it better, the anti-hero storyline. I think that that's was groundbreaking and innovative and a lot of shows have copied that and you know most notably breaking bad and without the sopranos where are we you know do we do we have anti-hero movies and tv shows that do it the right way so in that respect yeah it's top it should be top five top one though i just can't do it i think i think I just think there, there were too many. I think I sent a British right there. I think it's. Oh my God, dude. So that's the Sopranos. I think if I had seen it, you know, like I've been saying, if I had seen it since day one, when it first started and I watched week to week, you know, that's tough to, uh, tough to argue with, but having seen so many other programs and shows and whatnot since then that have been influenced by it. it's it's it takes away from its its value i guess i still think there are too many flaws you know i guess you could say they abandoned a lot of storylines like that you you built up so many storylines just to abandon them and kind of gloss over them that stinks and i think that costs it points in my book not that my book makes a fucking difference at all but uh but then I think about, well, there, it's Tony's story. So the storylines that they build up, they're only building up because it, it's of how it affects Tony and his decision-making. And then when that storyline doesn't matter to Tony anymore, they don't pay any attention to it anymore. So if, I, if that's the case, then okay, maybe, the, maybe it's not as... Uh, <sighs> the cons or the uh, demerits are not as as great all right so we got to watch the first episode of season four of mr robot <clears throat> um i you know i'm completely lost i i i should have done a a, a brief just recap you know looking online and to catch up because it's been a while since we've watched it and they did do a previously on Mr. Robot type of thing, but it just like all of a sudden, I think it just rolled into the, the episode. And so I was like, wait, are we still in the recap or are we in the episode? And, you know, to Sam Ismail's credit, I mean, that's pretty much what Mr. Robot is at all times. <laughs> it's just, it's meant to be confusing and disorienting. Um, and I thought they did, you know, a, a good job of that. It's just like, oh man, what a way, what an episode. Uh, I mean, uh, spoilers, there's going to be spoilers, but major character right off the bat gets killed. Major character at the end of the, at the end of the episode is killed. I mean, whoa, way to bring the friggin' heat. And I believe this is maybe the final season. Maybe there's one more season, which again, I'm fine with if it, uh, you know, there's, you can only drag this out. So, so far, um, of course, uh, what's, what's her face is in denial about, uh, you know what? 
skip Mr. Robot. I'll say this. I'll give you a better synopsis of Mr. Robot next week or maybe down the road. But uh, the, the first episode was, yeah, got me hooked right back into what's going on. Um, and it gave me a night terror, apparently. You know, and I had two chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk. And I, if I, I, I have this rule that if it's after nine, I'll turn into a gremlin and have a night terror. And if it's before nine, like I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Not going to have a night terror. Like, no, you're, I had it before nine and I had like a series of night terrors to the point where the last night terror, I think I woke up and was like, will this ever end? Will this ever end? Uh, like I was just, I was losing it. I was like, what is this, number 15 on the night? Like, this is insane. And, and and each time, it wasn't even something, it didn't, it wasn't like a big, like a goblin or a demon or a witch or a vampire or a werewolf or, you know, a sea monster or like a, a spirit or anything like that. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, it felt like just a wave. Just a wave came over me and I was screaming. And it's just like waves now, waves, cool, waves. So I didn't do enough research to do a Mr. Robot recap and I apologize. I'll, I'll be better next week. There's a lot of shit that I cover on this show and it's like sometimes you swing and a miss and Mr. Robot, I did not put enough talking points here. I put one talking point. The recap rolled right into the episode and it was confusing. Thanks. Way to go, Neil. So, I mean, by the time I, you, you spend most of the first episode just trying to catch up because you're like trying to remember trying to, you know, unless you're a diehard fan who's like on the Reddit 24 seven, um, you know, you're like, you're vaguely familiar with the characters and their names because it's been so long since you've seen them. And then, you know, boom, 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 boom. By the time you like wrapping your head around everything, it's like, Oh, and, and now that happened. Okay, great. Everything that you've learned out the window. All right. So that's the TV section. Just all over the place as usual. Let's uh, talk about movies. Fight Club came out 20 years ago. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I will say came out October 99. I was 18 years old, not even 19 yet. And I'd like to, I, I'm pretty sure this shaped my worldview. <laughs> I mean, 18 is a very impressionable age. I think 18 to 24, you know, even in high school, you're, you're highly impressionable age, but that's, this like changed like my outlook on everything. It was just like, I, I had already, you know, you're already in that mind frame. Most guys that age who are, uh, psychologically a mess as I'm, I, <laughs> you already have that kind of, uh, anarchy type mindset like nothing matters and i don't care and blah, blah blah and then this movie just cemented it it was just like isn't this fun isn't this fun and isn't this a great idea like sounds pretty cool dude blowing up all the major credit centers and wiping out the debt and it's actually i mean it's completely 1000 percent the inspiration for mr robot i mean that's a given so um yeah, I mean, it's just like, what's the point? Nothing matters. I get it, AJ Soprano. I get it. I get it now. <laughs> but 
but yeah, even like 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, what's the point? I get, I get it. Fight club, you know, and it's messaging and messages are the same now as it has, or even more amplified now than it was in 99. I mean, 99, it was, and there was an article about this, you know, 99 was kind of the, uh, resistance or rebellion to cor- corporate culture, the globalization of the of uh, business, and how you know we're all stuck in cubicles and like wasting away. And this is you know, pre pre nine eleven, so like you know there were a lot of movies like that, American Beauty, like Fight Club. It was all battling against like cube culture, you know the the monotony of having a job that's the same thing every day, which still plagues me to this day. I need a little variety. It's the spice of life. Haven't you heard? Uh, Team America World Police came out 15 years ago. I will say the one thing, one more thing about Fight Club. I'm still amazed at Brad Pitt's body in that friggin' movie. And uh, I, it, it, up until like two years ago, I thought maybe I could still get that body. <laughs> Maybe when I turned 30, I was like, fuck this. Because it's just like the the things that you have to go through and you hear about it's genetics and you have to eat, not eat certain things and not drink. It's like not do anything fun ever. No, thanks. So that's that's that. Uh, Team, Team America World Police came out 15 years ago. Um. <laughs> I mean, the only the only scenes or moments I remember from Team America World Police was uh, well, the puppets having sex, the marionette puppets having sex, and then uh, where the older puppet. I mean, I don't even remember the plot line, but the older puppet was like, "Suck my cock, Gary." <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that's pretty funny. And then the the puppets throwing up. I need to give that a rewatch. I feel like that's a good movie that I just don't, it's like never on TV. I don't feel like, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, dare I say underrated. I don't know. I, mean, I can say it. Free conch. Crystalia shout out. Uh, Joker continues to earn big Gemini man stumbles, which that stinks. And Jexy flopped, which also stinks, but I can understand that. Gemini Man, I've been looking forward to for a long time, ever since I saw the first trailer, even first heard about it. You know, I'm a big fan of Looper and, and what they did there. But this is, you know, they didn't get an actor to do an impression and prosthetics. They just de-aged Will Smith. So it just, I don't know. I mean, how how does it stumble? I don't know. I guess if you have a choice between Joker and that, you, you pick Joker. But Will Smith always seemed like such a box office draw, and I think he still has it. Um, I'm sure I'll see it, and I'll be like, I don't understand why this stumbled, but then that's probably why I'm unemployed. <laughs> Jexy flopping. I mean, I saw the pre- I saw the trailer for this, and it's like, if it were not Adam Devine, I'd, I would hate the idea of this movie. Hate it. A rogue iPhone. Ugh. But it's Adam Devine, and I love Adam Devine. 
So I was like, oh, I'll give it a chance. Maybe other people can give it a chance. But it's looking now, now more like it should have just been like a Netflix movie. Like that's a Netflix movie. I think he's had like two or three movies just come out on Netflix and not to theaters. And I've enjoyed them. And I think that's unfortunately the route that a lot of these, I'll say low budget, relatively low budget comedies are just not going to go to theaters anymore, which kind of sucks. But then again, they, you know, we get, you know, Netflix is doing its part in supporting comedies and, and smaller budget comedies, but will they have the same cultural impact that a lot of the comedies of, of your had, you know, the old schools, the wedding crashers, the, the ones that aren't the, like the big action pineapple express type movies where it's like this big, like, you know, uh, I guess not midnight run, but like they have to have this huge action element to justify a huge budget, to justify a theatrical run. What a conundrum. Uh, new mutants. Uh, do you remember new mutants? Cause I kind of forgot about it. The trailer for new mutants, which was supposed to be like the next class of X-Men. Uh, the trailer released in October, two, three, two years ago, October 2017, and the movie still hasn't released yet. It's supposed to release in April 2020. Who knows if that's supposed to happen? Um, apparently, Disney is not ha happy with what they've seen, despite positive testing, which is good in movies, bad in health, positive test, or pregnancy if you don't want a baby. <laughs> but this follows... Uh, a bunch of the the new mutants, and I think the cast was like Macy Williams from Game of Thrones, which is cool. And then I think it was some other uh, actress. Is it the actress from Juno? Maybe. And uh, I think it even had the kid from Stranger Things, Finn Wolfhard. Maybe not. It was a good cast, though. It's a good cast, and apparently they're gonna make it try and make it in more into more of a horror movie, which I, th I feel like everyone's going down that road because route because it's like horror has just been dominating box offices over the past five ten years, and you're just gonna see more like horror comedy, action horror, horror thriller, horror horror horror. I don't know. We're gonna hit a saturation point at some point. I hope I can't take any more horror. My wife can't take any more horror with the night terrors I have. Uh, Zori Kravitz will be Catwoman in the new Batman movie with Robert Pattinson, which I think is a pretty good choice. I know she was in uh, X-Men first class. I think she was the, the one with the, like she looked like the Tinkerbell type character, but she had like, she could spit venom or something like that. <laughs> So she's familiar with superhero type stuff. So that should be interesting. Uh, and speaking of superheroes, HBO's Watchmen series premieres Sunday, October 20th. Um, very excited for this. I don't know if I will get the wife on board. Hopefully I will. If not, we'll have like a Game of Thrones situation where I got to watch it on my own free time. Damn it. I thought this was interesting, though. Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie, which came out 10 years ago. Uh, a movie I really, really like, uh, really love. Actually, went as the comedian for Halloween one year. 
I think it was 2010. Yeah. <laughs> that was awkward because I ended up, if you hook up on Halloween night and you're wearing a costume, that's bad news. It's happened twice to me where you just, you sleep over cause you're tired and you're drunk and you wake up and you're in costume. Oh, it's happened three times. Excuse me. It happens every time when I was single. You wear an outrageous costume, you hook up, you stay over, and then you got to do the walk of shame, which is like the ultimate walk of shame. It's walk of shame times a million because you're in costume still, and everyone's like, oh, man. Oh, boy. So that was uh, when I dressed up as the comedian. Um, anyway, in Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie, Someone pointed out that uh, in the opening credit sequence, you see Night Owl, so not Patrick Wilson's Night Owl, which is Night Owl 2. You see the original Night Owl back in like the, I don't know, 40s, 30s, 50s, whatever, back in the day. Um, accosting or, or capturing or thwarting a criminal with a gun and like a mask. And you see in the background like a well-to-do couple man and woman man in like a tuxedo almost a woman and uh, like a fur and pearls and and they're outside of a theater and it says the gotham opera house i think so so it's essentially night owl stopped uh the criminal from shooting and killing bruce wayne's parents is the insinuation there. And so if Bruce Wayne's parents aren't killed, does he go on to become Batman? Probably not. He just goes on to become a, a wealthy billionaire. Um, so, and you know, Watchmen played with the Watchmen's kind of always said from the get go, it's an, it, it's an alternate universe. Like I think Nixon is still president in the eighties in the Watchmen movie. I could be wrong about that. How could he be president that long? Because it was 85, wasn't it? And he was president in 72? I don't know. I think Nixon was like still president in the Watchmen movie. So, and it was the 80s. So it's definitely an alternate universe, but it just got me thinking like, what if there was no Batman? Um, which is Watchmen DC Comics? Oh, man, you know, I'm not knowledgeable to talk about this stuff. So why do I talk about it? I don't fucking know, dude. Um, oh, I guess, well, if there's no Batman, like, is there no Joker? And if there's no Joker, Gemini Man dominates the box office. No, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I might write a blog about that. Like, what if Batman doesn't exist? They, the article said, that, like, if Batman doesn't exist, his arch his villains don't exist or his arch enemies don't exist. So there's no superhero. There's no super villains. You know, I was going to talk about El Camino and do a review, but it's like, I don't like, what am I going to say that hasn't already been said? I, I don't know. It's all right. That's my review. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you were looking forward to my El Camino review, I apologize, but I feel like it's already been talked to death. It had a weird uh, premiere time at like two in the morning. I didn't watch it uh, when it came out two in the morning. I watched it later on that night on Friday night. Um, I think on Friday night. And, you know, I was never a big fan of Jesse Pinkman. He reminded me of a kid. I went to high school with who was a real raging asshole. And so I already had that swimming around in my, in my feels. So I never really felt for Jesse. I mean, I, you know, towards the end, 
when I first watched Breaking Bad, I mean, I didn't watch it week to week. I did like a whole binge session in like, I want to say May 2014. So even after this season, was it 2014? Yeah. So I tore my, uh, I tore my ACL playing football at Hoboken High School field. I was 30 when it happened. <laughs> it was, it was flag football. And that was uh, March 2009. So that's the first time I fucked up my left knee. And then I came back and I went back to that same field playing the same flag football game. And I tore my meniscus in October. It was Halloween night, 2013. The day after that, I met my bride-to-be, my wife, on our first date. Bring that up because... I then ended up having surgery like months later because our fucking healthcare system is bizarre and sucks. It's like, it takes months to get an MRI. It takes months to get an appointment, to get a diagnosis. It takes months. And it's just like, just, and I love always, well, if I was a professional athlete and then everyone goes, well, you're not a professional athlete, Neil. And I'm just like, I fucking know, but does it have to be such a drop off? Like the professional athlete, the moment it happens, and sorry to, to snap my fingers and give everyone who's ever torn an ACL PTSD, I just got the shivers myself, so I apologize to myself and to you for snapping my fingers. But at the same time, it's like, do we need a professional athlete ha- has it happen, immediately gets examined by a doctor, immediately gets sent to a hospital, immediately has surgery, immediately, 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 immediately. And it's like, can we just cut down the time gap between it happening and the surgery. It happened October, 2013, 31st, 2013. I didn't have surgery to fucking May. It was March or May. And so, uh, you know, they give you meds and you can't, you can't do work on those meds. Good luck. And so I was out a week, maybe two weeks just cause I couldn't move a, and B, it's like, even if I were to get on a computer and try and do work, you know, like who knows what kind of email I would send back to a, a client or partner or vendor or whatever, you know, to my boss, like it could go in some bad places. So best play it safe and stay out. And so I just watched Breaking Bad. I binged the whole series on Percocets, which is, <laughs> it's funny when you think about it. Uh I mean, that was, uh, I had like, I wanted to get a burner phone. That's how into the show I was. It was like, I was convinced myself, I need to get a burner phone. And every call I make, I'm going to snap the burner phone in half and get another burner phone. My fucking nose, dude. <sighs> it's insane what's going on in my nose. I'd be fine without a nose. Honestly, God, I might chop it off. I'm fine with that. I don't know. I don't, I don't need it. I don't care anymore. Every smell I smell makes me think of some bad memory. Oh, that's the perfume you wear. That's the perfume. My bitch of a first ex-girlfriend wore, you know, it's just <sighs> your fucking nose. Yeah. El Camino. It just basically continues the story. Uh, Jesse Pinkman, you know, I guess in the last episode, you see him like driving away from the Nazi compound through the gate in the El Camino and everyone's like, what happens to Jesse? And so we needed to have a fucking two hour movie about Jesse Pinkman and what happened to his ass. Yes, I did feel sympathy for him and I felt 
awful for him when he's because he just he just got kicked around like a fucking rag doll um, for most of that last season. And, you know, being uh, held in a cage like an animal. I get it. I get it. I get it. Having his this girl that with the son that gets popped. Yeah, I get it. It sucks. Everything, everything that happened to him sucked. So I'm not saying he deserved it all, but it's like I don't need to see what happens to this guy. He's just going to have more shit, bad shit happen to him. But that was the movie. Will we catch up with Jesse after he escapes the compound? He goes, uh, hits up Skinny Pete and Badger. He has a bunch of flashbacks. Uh, and he's just trying to relocate, but he needs the money to relocate. So he goes to Todd's place. Jesse Plemons, played by Jesse Plemons, who everyone's talking about how he gained all. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate, but yeah, he gained a lot of weight since Breaking Bad went off the air. And he doesn't look the same as he did when he was when it was on the air. So everyone was commenting on that. And it's just like, you know, you hit a stage in life where it's like. Who cares? I'm obviously not going to be Mr. Universe. I'm not winning any competitions because of this body. And it's like, uh, what? I'm going to work my dick off to get a body to then what? I have to continue at that pace, that insane pace. So I'm, I feel you, Jesse Plemons. Fuck the haters. Um, but yeah, so he goes to skinny. Jesse goes to skinny Pete and Badger. They switch cars to throw off the authorities because the low jack has been activated. Um, he ends up going to Todd's old place and he's just tears it up looking for this money and finds it in the fridge. Then two cops come, you find out that the cops aren't cops. They're actually, one of them's the, the welder who welded the contraption that Jesse was attached to when the Nazis were facing, were making him cook meth. And like, that's... That was supposed to be like a big moment for everyone. And I'm and everyone I've I've heard talk about this has been like that was the big moment. It's like I don't remember that fucking welder. I don't know who that is. Turns out I was like, this guy looks familiar. That's Jimmy from The Mick. One of the most underrated comedies. I don't even think it's on the air anymore, which sucks. And it stars D, uh, Caitlin Olson from Always Sunny, but it has this guy Jimmy who plays D's uh you know, Caitlin Olson's kind of boyfriend, partner, friend, who's like this, uh, was a high school phenom baseball pitcher, but then like he got caught up in partying or whatever. And he's like kind of a bum now. And I'm like, man, you are me. I am you. And I get you and I love you. So if you haven't seen the Mick, I would suggest binge watching that and pay specific attention to Jimmy because he's an amazing character. He looks completely different in El Camino though. He's like, doesn't have the goatee-ish facial hair, or the long hair. It's all like slicked back and black and he looks different. You're just like something. It took me a while, but it's like, I don't know. Best moments are probably when, yeah, Jesse figures out the cops aren't cops. I mean, I figured it out when he's, when the cops are like, here, hand me that like wire. It's like, well, if you're a cop, you'd have handcuffs. So it's like that moment. Um, still snapping, love snapping the fingers. It's a good way to emphasize a point. You snap. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. <sighs> Show's going off the rails. Fuck. Yeah. So. Uh, that was a good moment. The moment where they have the kind of the wild west showdown. Um, and people are like 
when it's happening, you're like, this is odd. But then it's like, if you've ever done cocaine, like this is, <laughs> this makes sense. <laughs> it's like this wild west shootout makes sense. If you're all on cocaine. Uh, yeah, I get it. You know, uh, cause the welder played by Jimmy from the Mick is like, you feel invincible and you're like, Oh, uh, I mean, I'm a badass. I have this money and this punk is going to come and try and take my money. And even though it was only $1,800, which, uh, you know, uh, I, I would be, yes, I would be a little reluctant, but it's like, you got a shit ton more money, dude. You, it's almost like hand him the 1800, but like, you got to get something in return. That's all. But you're, when you're on cocaine, you don't think about that kind of stuff. So I've heard, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool. The wild west showdown, showdown shootout, even though it's like, Jesus Christ, you guys are point blank and you're not hitting anything. <laughs> it's just like the amount of bullets wasted, uh, by inaccurate shooters for now, like just crazy. So that was cool. And then, you know, the rest of it is really just, you know, Jesse getting away. Uh, flashbacks to him with Walter in the diner flashback to him with Jane, I guess, who's played by Kristen Ritter, which, uh, was, which was a like toxic relationship. Wasn't it? It was like, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I just don't think I, it makes me think of Christopher Moltisanti from the Sopranos and the real estate agent. Like, yes, they have this like, strong bond but it's held together by drugs and alcohol and it's like it's not the bond that's sealing it together is not great and it's gonna end up being your downfall so uh, from what i remember that's exactly what was going on in breaking bad with uh jesse and jane is that you know yeah he found someone that loved him and whatnot but they also love drugs more than being in a sober relationship i think then there's also the woman with the son and he writes a letter to the son brock i guess I don't know. I probably should have rewatched <laughs> the last couple episodes of Breaking Bad before diving into that. So that's on me. But I guess it's good to see Jesse, you know, got away and is doing well in Alaska. Godspeed. You're in God's country. I guess that's what they call it. Um, yeah, decent movie. Decent movie. But not. I don't think it's going to like... People are going to be like, you know, it's going to enhance. I mean, there are plenty of Easter eggs. I found that out after going to the IMDb trivia page. It's like plenty of little fun Easter eggs that the director, uh, Vince Gilligan, puts in. Um, So I think if you're like super diehard Breaking Bad, you can pick up on all the little things that he tipped off and and have those little endorphins go off in your brain as chemical reactions. But I think it. It missed a lot of the elements that made Breaking Bad so great. Um, and for what? And everyone's just calling it unnecessary fan service. It's like, I don't disagree. It still was, I didn't feel like I wasted my time, but I also don't feel like, you know, like there's not going to be any sequels or anything like that. It's not continuing the storyline. It was basically just wrapping up one storyline, Jesse's storyline, because people were so worried about Jesse Pinkman. It's like, all right, I get it anyway. All right. So that's uh, El Camino, <laughs> my super professional review. Let's talk about Brightburn. It's a movie that I was 
really attracted to. I like the premise. It's essentially like, what if a Superman level type character crashed down to earth as a baby? Basically, what if Superman grew up, but was bad? Like, you know, same kind of, uh, origin story, distance crash lands on a spaceship to earth in Kansas, which is the same here in Brightburn. Uh, a, a couple takes him, takes the baby in and raises him and he discovers he has superpowers, but he doesn't use the superpowers for good. He's in for evil. It's basically the, the premise. Elizabeth Banks stars as uh, Tori, the wife and uh, her husband, Kyle is played by Roy from the office. Um, and uh, it's interesting, the timeline, and it's produced by James Gunn, who did uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's written by his brother and his cousin. And, um, you know, good movie. It starts in 2006, which I think is an interesting year that they picked because that's also the year that Superman Returns hit theaters with Brandon Ruth. And then we we see uh, the baby growing up and then because the the Tori and Kyle, the parents, the Kents in this uh, version of the Superman story um, can't conceive. They're having trouble conceiving. And so this is like a, it is literally a gift from God it's just dropped in their lap. So, of course, they take the baby in. And raise it as their own. And they tell the kid that uh, he's adopted. So, like, you see home videos of, of, you know, the kid growing up. And he looks pretty normal. And then 10 years later, 2016. <laughs> although, this is where I was getting confused. Because, <laughs> like, they show the kid upright with a shovel padding dirt. And you're like, okay, that kid's got to be, can be anywhere from 5 to 9. I don't know. I'm not good with ages on young kids. And then they say 10 years later, and it looks like the kid hasn't gone through puberty yet. So I think he's 13. I, I don't know. His voice has not lowered yet. But he, the, the assumption here is he's going through puberty. So and essentially, this could be an allegory for... And this is a major reason why the parents don't respond earlier to the threat of this kid... Because he is going through puberty and puberty is a rough time and a lot of emotions and whatnot running through the body at that point. Um, but yeah, he starts showing signs of weirdness, you know, sleepwalking, chanting in a foreign tongue, um, his ability to just like stick his hand in a, in a running lawnmower and have the blade stop and not be affected by it at all. The kid that they got to play, um, Brandon Briars is the is the character's name, um, who's like the essentially the Clark Kent. Um the, the kid they they got to play that character is just awesome. I thought he did a great job. Very creepy, very spooky. And like even the costume that he has is just like super creepy. It's it's a homemade costume, but it's like a I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it looks like a sweater, corduroy sweater, not corduroy, but like a cord sweater with like shoelaces across where the nose and the mouth would be. And I don't know what the inspiration is or what it's supposed to look like, but it's creepy as fuck. Great job there. 
where he kills. So he's kind of uh, infatuated with this girl that sits in front of him in class. And so he doesn't know what to do about it. He has a, his dad talks to him about. And so this is kind of a, a comedic, which should be a comedic misinterpretation or miscommunication because the dad talks to him about it and is like, you know, it's okay to play with it. And it's okay to like, it's okay to this, okay to that. And so the kid kind of takes that to the, to the extreme and ends up like uh, essentially stalking this girl and like being in a room and like turning on her computer and kind of harassing her ends up breaking her hand because she calls him a creep or a pervert. And then the mother gets involved and her mother gets like, just, ugh, I don't wish this death on anyone. The scene where and she's a waitress in a, like a diner or restaurant and it's after hours, closing hours. And like uh Brandon Breyer shows up and just takes it to her. And the worst part is like the, the glass in the eye, dude. Oh, the glass in the eye. It's just like, <sighs> I needed a moment after that for sure. My wife couldn't watch. And I was like, oh, I don't, yeah, I, I had trouble watching that, but I couldn't look away. <laughs> he slaughters the chickens and Tori, the mother. So the mother, essentially the mother, Elizabeth Banks just keeps making excuses for him. Just like, he's my son. I will, I love him. I will always defend him. And the husband is just like, yo, this is an alien. I know you want this to be your son, but this is not a human like you and me. We've never seen him bleed. You know, he never gets sick. Like, this is an alien. <laughs> He's not us. And, uh, ooh, when, he, when, the, when the father is like, yeah, we're going on a hunting trip. And you're like, see you, dad. <laughs> like, you're not coming back. No shot in hell. You are donezo, bro. And, of course, he, like, takes him out. Uh, to the woods and the kids like goes to investigate something and and the dad just like lays back and like eyes him up scopes him up and just like shoots and it just bounces off the kid's head and you're just like oh fuck yo and of course he does the uh the laser eye laser beams into the other person's into the dad's eyes and melts his face which we've seen, we've now seen twice, or I've seen twice. If you've ever watched uh, a certain show on Amazon Prime Video that's also about superheroes, I don't want to spoil it. It rhymes with the the toys. But uh, just gruesome shit. Like, so the waitress, the glass and the eyeball is just pretty. That was pretty bad until you see what happens to her later on in the movie, and you're like, oh, that's worse. <laughs> Glad we did not see that. But uh, even worse death? I mean, the eye, looking into your eyes of your son, quote-unquote, and getting melted, that stinks. Glass in the eye, that stinks. But the, I guess it was the uncle who's trying to drive away. The fact that he's like, he, he's drinking, he drives home, he, he like finds the kid in the closet and he's like, what are you doing? You scared me. Get the hell out of here. And he's like treating him like shit and, or not treating him like shit, but he's like trying to, you know, have some authority over the kid while being like somewhat buzzed or drunk. Uh, 
Um, and then the kid just like going hog wild and he just immediately like takes off and drives away. Thought that was kind of odd. It was like, just call for your wife real quick. Just be like, Hey, this kid's a madman. Let's get the fuck out of here. And said, he's like, I'm just going to get in my car and bounce. And, um, his death has got to be the worst. Gah. Brandon Breyer like picks up the car and pulls it all the way up into the air, high, high up in the air and then drops it grill first. And he just, his like, first of all, wear a seatbelt dude. Although that was an old truck. I don't know if they had old trucks have seatbelts, but if it did like wear a seatbelt, God damn. And I understand like you're in a panic, like you're running away from a, a, an evil kid who can fly. Like, yeah, maybe the seatbelt's not for, top of mind at that point. But throwing a seatbelt, and of course he wasn't, and his face goes through the steering wheel, which is very similar to the whole curb stomp that Anthony did on Coco uh, after Coco harassed his daughter. So, yeah, I guess you can survive a curb stomp or a steering wheel stomp. And so his jaw comes off, and you're like, oh my God, his fucking jaw is off. And then the kid starts playing in the blood, and you're like, yeah, this kid... No, there's no coming back from that. I said this to my wife. I was like, so interesting that I felt a bit accelerated. It was like, hey, this kid hit puberty, complete evil, you know, psycho. And, you know, I know the spaceship was sending him secret messages and that is his true home. And I mean, you could say that he was possessed in a way. It's not really him. It's whatever message has, I guess, you know, sometimes when there's another snap, it's the third snap in that freaking episode. I'm like Thanos over here. But uh, you've seen certain instances in people where there's a trigger word or something. I think this happened in like with Treadstone and uh, the whole Jason Bourne series. Like there's a word that will activate certain people. It just like sets people off or triggers them. And then they become this like, I don't know, other person, homicidal maniac. And I guess that's what's happening here. The, this, the spaceship is sending some kind of message. <clears throat> to the kid and you find out like he's chanting in foreign tons tongues and you find out that the the message that the ship is sending is take the world and then we're all screwed i'm gonna be honest i really really thought tori was gonna survive and i think that that must have been the the, the final twist it's like i thought elizabeth banks was like all right i've allowed this to happen this is my fault. I got to, everyone's dying and I got to atone for everything, all the mistakes I've made and redeem myself and, and take care of this. And I thought she was really going to come through and do it. And no, dead wrong. Uh, the fact that like, yeah, okay. She did try to kill you. And so now you got to kill her cause you're the kid. And like, you know, she, yeah, she did try to kill you and she did try to trick you and dupe you. And, but I thought that was still going to be that moment, like when he picks her up and, and like blasts through the roof of the barn and it flies up into the sky into space, which people were like, you can't survive the husband. And I was like, all right, just suspend your disbelief, dude. You don't have to fact check everything, but he, he carries her into, into the, I don't know, upper sky limits, stratosphere, whatever. And just drops her. Ugh. 
And there was a second, there were two moments. It was like the moment where he's, he reaches the apex of his climb and, and there's the, they're hovering there and he's looking to her eyes. I thought like, okay, she's mangled. Her face is just mangled, but she's still alive. Like he's going to look at her and he's going to be like, and she's going to say something. And that'll be a trigger word for him to go the opposite way. Like he'll be like, she'll say, you know, Rosebud or, you know, Martha or something, some kind of word. And he'll just kind of like snap out of it and be like, Oh my God, mom, I love you. And like take her, take her down and land her safely. And then we'd figure it out from there. Nope. Drops her <laughs> like a bad habit. And then I was seeing her fall in slow motion, looking up. And I honest to God, I thought the kid was going to have a second, like second guess himself or have a doubt and be like, you know what? No, I can't let her die. She's supported me throughout this whole time. Even when I was murdering people, she still loved me and still, you know, defending me and supporting me. And then he was going to like, like catch her right before she hit the ground and like swoop her up and then take her away and imprison her or something like that. Nope. She dropped and died. And then he crashes a plane to cover it up. It's like, whoa, we really doubled down there. This kid, this kid is not fucking around. Um, I don't know if it'll get a sequel. They kind of, I like how they ended it though, to, to keep it open to the possibility of a sequel. I think that they, I don't mind them exploring it. I think it's, it's something in a way, cause you, you end the movie and you're like, oh, so the bad guy wins. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't like how, what the bad guy was doing. Like, I didn't like the bad guy wins. So you kind of have that feeling like, oh man, oh, well, I want to see this kid. Like, you know, I don't want, you basically end up with, uh, there's like a YouTube video of this conspiracy theorist who is like putting the pieces of the puzzle together and you, you know, see Brandon Breyer and his cape and he's like flying around causing destruction and mayhem. And, but then you see all these other different uh, villains, um, wreaking havoc and the, the conspiracy theorists talking about it. And, um, it's essentially a bizarro justice league. So Brandon Breyer is like the evil Superman, but then you see, he's talking about a woman who chokes people out with her ropes, which is supposed to be wonder woman. You see a half man, half sea creature. Who's like taking down submarines and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, being diabolical under the water and that's supposed to be Aquaman. And then you see like in, uh, I guess, uh, I don't remember this part, but there was like a Martian mind hunter type character who was, uh, who's also doing some, uh, evil deeds dunder cheap. So they definitely set it up and left it open so that there's possibility of this like bizarro justice league coming together. But then, who is the hero? So I thought if they were going to really consider maybe doing a sequel and, and kind of expanding the universe and turning into something cool on its own, maybe they would hint at a hero or superhero that could possibly take down Brandon Breyer um, and this bizarro Justice League that is that is formed. There was also an image of the Crimson Bolt, which was Rain Wilson's character from uh, James Gunn's film Super who I guess had similarities to Batman, although you think Crimson Bolt, you think the flash, but, um, so, I mean, there's potential there. I, it didn't get outstanding reviews. I think it was like in the fifties or sixties, both audience and critics. Uh, I think, you know, 
it did well playing on a lot of what we've what we've known about Superman and, and turning it on its head. And I think there's uh, they should explore continuing the storyline because I, I certainly think it's interesting. You know, who is the superhero in this instance? If there is no Superman, who is, you know, is Lex Luthor like in this bizarro, twisted, alternate version of Superman? Is Lex Luthor the hero? You know, could be interesting. So, although I, I would think the guns have their plates full with uh, Suicide Squad and all that. But definitely give it a watch if you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it and you just listened to me talk about it, what are you doing? <laughs> you got to know by now, I don't know how to give non-spoilery reviews. <sighs> um, so let's talk Mets. Um, Met, this is going to be quick this week with the Mets. I mean, you know, uh, there's just, there's too much speculation and rumination and, and gossip going on right now to, to like make sense of it all. I mean, the Mets are t- uh, taking their time, which I guess is good. They're being thorough, which is nice, methodical. I'm always a fan of that. You don't want to rush into a bad decision or bad judgment, but at the same time, some other team just could swoop in swoop and scoop my wife calls it swooping you swoop in and scoop our number one candidate and then we're and then we're like oh we'll just go to our number two candidate and then number two candidate's gone three he's gone you know it's like you know move a little bit quicker dusty baker so that was a a name i didn't really bring up last week i don't think but uh you know disha thorsa from the new york daily news said that dusty baker checks all the boxes for the next match manager I don't know about that. He is 70 years old, which, you know, the ageist in me is like, no, it's not, you know, come on. But then again, our president is 70 plus years old. Our pitching coach, uh, president of the United States, I should mention that president of the Mets, president of the United States, 70 plus years old. And our pitching coach is like 80 something. So I don't know. Dusty's a three-time manager of the year. He's made nine trips to the playoffs, seven winning seasons out of 10 in San Fran. Dumped by the Nats after two straight 95-plus winning seasons, which is a joke. That's why the Nationals fucking suck. But yet they're going to win the World Series this year, so maybe they... (laughs) What the fuck? The Nationals, dude. I... I've never been more wrong about a team. I thought, all right, they lose Bryce Harper, so obviously they're maybe they'll make the playoffs, but even if they do, they're not going to go far because they couldn't even win with Bryce Harper on the roster. And, of course, they're now a game away from going to the World Series. What is going on with the Cardinals, dude? You come out and you pummel the Braves. First of all, the Braves, like the Braves and the Dodgers. That's uh, That has to be a fate worse than death. And I, I've, I think I've been there once or twice before. All right. I think the 2005 Giants, New York Giants, um, went like 11 and five. They looked real good. And then uh, they host, I believe they host the wild card against the Panthers and they get smoked like 23 nothing. I was like, well, this, what the hell was that season? Looks so good in the regular season. We don't even show up in the postseason. 2008 Giants, we go 12 and 4, home field advantage. Of course, Plax shoots himself in the friggin' uh, leg. But 12 and 4, home field advantage. We haven't had that since 2000, I think. 
And then, you know, just don't show up. We get a bye and we face the Eagles in the divisional round and we just we just get crushed. We just don't show up. Mets, I would say 2006 was a real downer. I mean, you, you win 100 and plus games and then you don't even make it to the World Series. That's that's rough. But at least you got the NLCS, I guess. Um, so, you know, I've been there before, but if you're like a Braves or a Dodgers fan, whoa, losing in the NLDS in that fashion too, you know, Dodgers with your number one coming out of the bullpen and giving up the game tying home run and then the Braves just completely not showing up in an elimination game and getting run out of the building in the first inning, 10 runs to the Cardinals, to the Cardinals, then gloating and being like, we kill the Braves, we kill them, and like getting all hyped up, and then and then just not, and, get, and basically are getting swept by the Nationals. Strasburg and Scherzer are pitching out of their minds right now. They're putting up record performances. Like, Double-digit strikeouts, no walks type performances. I mean, they're just like, I've never seen pitching like that before. I mean, and we have with DeGrom, but like this is almost more dominant, DeGromanant than DeGrom. <laughs> Dusty Baker, though, it's crazy that he gets fired after two 95-plus winning seasons, but I mean, they got eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. They had not won a playoff series under his watch, which, I don't know, I'm still, if you're a Mets fan, just getting to the playoffs is nice. <laughs> so, I wouldn't mind just getting to the playoffs. It'd be nice. But you still would like to have a nice showing in the playoffs and, and not get run out of the building in an elimination game or, you know, have a record. I mean, the, the Dodgers won the NL West in fucking August. <laughs> oh, my God. And then they didn't even make it to the NLCS. I mean, you know, oh, the Seattle Mariners, 2001. I don't even know if it was 2001. They had like 108 wins, 110, 120. They had an outrageous amount of wins in the regular season. And then just, I don't even think they won. They went to the ALCS. I don't know. Dude. That's that'll really take the wind out of your sails. I'd rather squeak in. I'd rather do what the nationals are doing and just squeak in last week of the season and then just ride that momentum right through the world series. So kudos to them. It sucks. Uh, if it ends up being Nationals Yankees, who are you rooting for? <sighs> I don't know, dude. I, I, I guess, I mean, you can't root for the Nationals. Can you? There are a lot of Mets fans that hate Yankees fans and hate the Yankees, and I just do not care. I don't care. I don't care. They're not, they're in our city. Great. Different league. American League, National League. I care about the motherfuckers in our division. The Braves, the Phillies, the Nationals, the Marlins. I need those teams to lose. I do not want those teams winning because we play them more than any other teams. They are our rivals. Yes, the Yankees are our rival in the city, and it's nice to have a Subway Series and that rivalry and all that jazz. They have 27 championships. Have you heard? Not sure if you've heard because they only say it every other time they speak. So it's like, what's the difference between the Yankee fans saying, oh, we have 28 rings versus 27? 
It's like, it's, a, it's an unfathomable number. The Mets have two. <laughs> We're going it, to, it'll take, it'll take us, if we win the World Series next year, it'll be the year 2045 if we win the World Series every year since from next year just every year from that year it would take us 25 straight years of winning a world series for us to compete with the yankees because they will always use always use that 27 28 bullshit and you gotta be like well most of those came in the 20s and 30s when like people were eating 11 hot dogs and 4 million cokes you know and like you know smoking cigars in the dugout like so I don't know. I just don't think just if the Yankees want to go and win the World Series, great, great. I do not care. The Nationals going to the World Series and winning, that sucks because they're in our division. We have to face them more often. We have to face their quote unquote fans more often. They'll have that ammo in their back pocket every time we face them. World Series, World Series, World Series. You went and you couldn't win. We went and we won. To me, that gets under my skin more than a fucking Yankees fan who's like, 28, 28, uh, 28. And if you're a Red Sox fan, do you want the Yankees to go to the World Series? No. And when? It's like when the Phillies were playing the Yankees in the World Series in 2009, 10 years ago. I'm not cheering for the Phillies, dude. What, are you crazy? So... But uh, Dusty Baker, um, back to the the lecture at hand. Um. So yeah, I mean, uh, Dusty, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't mind that. I guess if all else falls through, that's a good last resort to have. Another candidate, Luis Rojas, is the current quality control coach so this is the guy i mentioned last week that i didn't know anything about i did a little more research on this time a 38 year old with high baseball iq uh is the son of felipe alu brother of moises the nephew of maddie and jesus so it's got that baseball royalty that everyone loves the jizz over um and then here's another update about carlos beltran this motherfucker has gone from not being interested in, at all in the position to considering the position to now the Mets manager job is the only manager job he's considering. He declined interviews with the Cubs and the Padres per report. So Andy Martino, whoever the hell reported that he had no interest or that they'll never work because of the past, like, come on, dude, you vet your shit. Can't just like pop off and not have any facts to back it up. That's my job. Um, Beltron interviewed with the Mets on Thursday. He's been uh, he was serving as a special advisor to Brian Cashman uh, after losing out the manager position to Aaron Boone. But you know, good mentor, clubhouse leader, bilingual, which is huge these days. Uh, maybe he can talk to Diaz and say, "Hey, man, what is your deal?" Um, two other candidates that are really under the radar, dark horse candidates, Carlos Feebles, Feblis, and Ron Reinke. I mean, have harder to pronounce last names, guys. Two Red Sox coaches who are now in consideration because they have a connection with Allard Baird, who is a Mets executive now, came from Boston. Um, Feebles, Fabulous is the Red Sox third base coach and was a minor league manager for six seasons. Uh, Reinke... Ranicky, Ranicky was Alex Cora's bench coach for last year's World Series team. 
Um, he also managed the Brewers to the NLCS in 2011. And he was a top lieutenant for Mike Sosha with the Angles. Angles. <laughs> the obtuse Angles of Anaheim. Marcus Stroman is going to change his number out of respect to Jose Reyes. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Well, considering Jose Reyes' domestic disputes and all that jazz, I don't think Jose Reyes is going to have his number retired anytime soon. And I know Stroman grew up and was a fan of, of Reyes and played with Reyes in Toronto. Fine. And maybe that's for the best. You know, I think that number might be a little cursed, <laughs> if we're being honest. So I don't mind him changing his number. He wore number 54, number six, of the Blue Jays. Of course, McNeil is six. So maybe he goes to 54, which I, I don't hate. Quote, grew up watching the passion and energy of Jose Reyes at Shea Stadium. Also loved playing with him. With that being said, I don't feel right wearing his number because of the incredible career he had in a Mets uniform. Excited to switch numbers and compete in Queens next year. Uh, okay. 54. All right. I don't hate it. We got DeGrom is 48. Syndergaard, 34. Matt's. The fuck is Matt's number? I don't know. Wheeler's 38. <sighs> Sad how I, little I know about numbers. <sighs> Rising Apple, which is a fan-sided property. Boo. They have five uh, Mets. And their articles are all like shitty slideshows and stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering why I'm deciding to mention this, but... <sighs> Five Mets, it was an intriguing headline, I guess. Five Mets offseason predictions with the rosters and coaching staff. Five Mets offseason predictions. Mets trade J.D. Davis or Dominic Smith. I don't think they get rid of Dom because they still need depth behind Alonzo. I mean, I know McNeil can play first, but it's, I just don't think you can just run anyone out at first base. I just, I don't know. It, it could end up costing you. Of course, you know, it's like how Pete played basically almost every game this year. I think he did play every game. So it's like the opportunities will be rare to make a mistake. But at the same time, you don't want someone in there. Um, should Pete get hurt? And then it's like a late inning game and then an error costs you the game. You need every win you can get. So Dom Smith probably doesn't get traded. And unfortunately, I think J.D. Davis is like the guy who's going to get traded only because of uh, the salary situation. You know, we, we're so tied to these guys that we signed a huge mega contract, so we cannot unload them, so we have forced to play them. Brody Van Wagenen, you done did it again. Um, number two, Zach Wheeler signs with the Braves. I mean, how many times are we going to help out the Braves and the Nationals? We just keep allowing them to sign contributors. I mean, that's good. That's a fate worth in death. I've said that twice now, but it's just rings true. Zach Wheeler of the Braves, man. I cannot have that. We cannot have that. That's bad news. Just get him out of the division. That's your first priority is to try and like, I don't know, convince someone else to, to in the American League to pick him up. Hmm. Number three, Joe McEwing will be the manager with uh, the potential of Edgardo Alfonso down the down the line. I don't I don't like that at all. 
I don't know. I don't know enough about Alpha McEwing as a manager or as a coach. A great utility player, you know, but I don't know anything about him as a manager or coach. But uh, off the bat, I'd have to say hard pass. That's a no. Argardo Alfonso, I'm almost more open to for some weird reason, but I've, I think I've heard more about his coaching, you know, thus far and how he's doing such a great job in the minors. So I'd rather have Alfonso over McEwing. Number four, Seth Lugo moves to the starting rotation. I mean, he wants it. I know Lugo wants it. The issue becomes if you let Wheeler walk and Lugo comes in and maybe you deal mats, like what do you do with mats? Then you don't have any lefties in your rotation. So, I mean, Lugo should help soften the blow of losing Wheeler. But then you you have a huge hole in your bullpen and you have to think about uh, picking up a lefty. If, uh, you know, what do you do with Mats? I mean, I guess you have to keep him in the rotation, but do you move Mats to the bullpen and bring in a lefty starter? <laughs> and number five, uh, Mets will add a position player in free agency. And he had mentioned uh, what I had mentioned last week, Starling Marte from the Pirates uh, center fielder. But he also mentioned Malik Smith of the Seattle Mariners. I don't know dick about that guy, but I haven't seen much. (laughs) I haven't heard or seen much about him. So I hope that's not the move. Sounds like another Keon Broxton in the making. No offense, Keon. SNY had an article. These three Mets seen as weaknesses could actually be assets in 2020. And no real surprises here. Robinson Cano, Marcus Stroman, and Edwin Diaz. I mean, Stroman didn't pitch. The first half of his Mets tenure didn't pitch as well as we would have hoped. And in the last half, yes, he did. I thought he pitched it right where we need him to pitch. He ended up being four and two with a three seven seven ERA, and we went eight and three in his outings. And you, Degrom, must look at those numbers and be like, "What the f? Like, why can't this happen for me?" Uh, his results, Stroman's results in eleven starts with the Mets, net out to a four point oh WAR. And uh, I mean, if you can, that would be uh, good for third best on the Mets if that happened over a course of a full season. So. I don't know, dude. He's got that magic touch. He's like, it's like the opposite. DeGrom must look at him and be like, can you just, whatever, give me some of that mojo? Diaz, uh, he has to bounce back. I cannot see him having another disastrous season. And it's, it's like, I don't know. How long do you give him? Like, what's the leash like in 2020? Like if he comes out that first month and is just dreadful and doing the same shit he's doing in the second half of this past year, do you, do you, what do you do? <laughs> I think it's a gamble. It's a risk, but I, I, you know, I don't know. Opposing hitters had a 387 batting average on balls in play against him. And the writer says, which means he may, Diaz may be right when saying hitters were getting lucky against them. You could pin it on the juiced balls. Let's see what happens without the juiced balls. But a lot of it was he just wasn't able to locate his fastball on his slider. I mean, he missed a lot of pitches. And that could be caused to the ball, the slipperiness of the ball that Noah referred to. But I think he'll have a bounce back year. I don't think Cano's going to have like a crazy good year. I think he's going to miss, you know, 30 to 60 games. He's going to miss 30 to 60 games a year from now on. Thank God we have Jeff McNeil. 
Uh, maybe Jed Lowry is able to fill in and do something, but you know, Cano is not going to give you 160 games. He's not going to give you 130 games. He's going to give you like 90 to 120. And what he does in those games, play average baseball. So what are you going to do? But Stroman and Diaz definitely bounce back years. Cano, I don't know. Yeah, so that's Mets talk. Pretty shitty segment. Let's talk Giants. So the Mets are kind of in limbo. They're kind of trying to figure stuff out. It's going to be an interesting offseason. But there's there's stuff to look forward to. The Giants might have something cooking here. I know that they got on paper, and this is the same thing that happened in the Vikings game. We were in the Minnesota Vikings game. We were in that game for a very long period. For It wasn't like we were losing by 18 the entire game. We were very close to making it a, a, you know, a tie ball game if one or two plays go our way. Patriots game on a short week without Engram, Barkley, Shep. We go in there and we stick it to the, the defending world champions, okay? For three and a half quarters. We were tied or within a touchdown of the Patriots until nine minutes left in the fourth quarter. I mean, if you had told me that, on Wednesday or before the game started, I'd be like, again, you hate to say moral victory, but it's something to build on. It is somewhat reminiscent of the 2007 finale between the Giants and Patriots when we stuck it to them then. And we were, we went punch for punch and we kept up and we almost beat them. And we didn't even have, and this, I mean, that's 2007 when I think we were like basically fully armed to the gills. We had our full arsenal. This one, our offense was like nothing. You know, John Hillman, (laughs) dude, screen pass, fumbles the ball, touchdown Patriots, puts the game pretty much out of reach. You know, you're costing us games with these fumbles, dude. And that's why he was released. Although I heard he was just signed back to the practice squad. So what do the, the Giants do? They release, cut the Hillman, and they sign Javorius Allen, uh, a.k.a. Buck Allen, who uh, used to be a running back for the Ravens. And the intel on him is, well, he's six foot 218, but he plays bigger than that. those sizes indicate. He can be used as a fullback. 28 years old, he's in his fifth season, only six starts in 54 games, but he averages 4.4 yards per touch. <laughs> And here's the kicker, only three fumbles in 469 touches. That's one fumble per 156 touches, which, you know, he probably gets. I don't know. He'll go multiple games without fumbling a ball is what I'm saying. Not like Hillman, who's fumbling the ball every game. Uh, Buck had two, two, two decent seasons with Baltimore. His career worst was last season, 2018, but he does have a nose for the end zone, having scored uh, 10 touchdowns. So that could give you an, a nice little red zone option, even if Barkley comes back. And boy, do we miss Barkley. And he's apparently he's practicing. He looks like he might return against Arizona. Engram is practicing. He looks like he might return to Arizona against Arizona. Stilling Shepard, I think it's wise to just keep him out another week. I just, uh, 
someone needs to do like a deep dive on that guy and just figure like let's really be as thorough as possible with sterling like let's not jeopardize any his future just for a game against the cardinals especially when golden tate is now showing you something i mean daniel jones didn't have many options in that pats game and yes it was the worst game of of danny's career he looked bad you know he had he waited too long to try and make a play to wait for something to develop. And then when he threw the ball, he got his arm hit interception. Um, he throws a little bit behind in a windy environment. They mentioned it multiple times. It was very windy there. So he throws it kind of behind golden Tate and the, the wind takes it gets tipped interception. So those two, eh, it's like, you know, those seem like rookie ish mistakes. Like it could have gone. If his arm isn't hit, it's not a pick probably. If it's not windy, does the ball not go behind Tate and does it not get tipped? And, you know, so those are kind of just freakish interceptions that you can't hold against them. The the last interception, though, you're driving into Patriots territory. You have Elijah Penny do just a basically run five yards and stop in front of you wide open. And you decide to force it on the right to Rhett Ellison against, I guess, Stephen Gilmore, Stephon Gilmore. And that's a pick. And that ruins a drive that had potential for points. So uh, on the upside, you know, the offense kind of stunk uh, despite, you know, Golden Tate looked good for the most part. Um, you know, a hell of a play on that, uh, the, the, the deep throw and the touchdown and was able to get open here and there. Um, so going forward, it looks like he could be, uh, fill in nicely for for Shep. Um, but the big story here is the defense, I think. And yeah, you look at the final score, 30, what, 35, 14, you're like, oh, Giants kept blowing it again. It's like, yeah, you didn't watch. Because the defense kept us in the game. I mean, the strip sack from Lorenzo Carter and the return by Marcus Golden, one of the greatest returns, fumble returns, by an outside linebacker I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> The sheer determination and fortitude uh, on that return, the ability to just stay upright and to to reach for the goal line, stretch for the goal line, and score. I mean that that's uh, he's been huge, and uh, and I hope they. I think he's going to be a free agent either the next year or the year after. They just just sign him. You know, I think he's shown you enough this year that it's like you're willing to to risk it. Um. We also re-signed Benny Fowler and released uh, Nate Stupar. I mean, yeah, we need depth, especially if Sterling Shepard is, is going to be out for a long time. I don't think Stupar really gave you anything uh, on defense, per se, maybe special teams. But David Mayo has done an outstanding job. And I know it was a little bit critical of Mayo last week, but... You over, overall, you look, you know, bird's eye view, you look at his, his, how he's performed filling in and he's done a great job. You know, you, I don't think you can ask for too much more considering the guy wasn't on your roster in training camp. He was cut by the 49ers and was a backup in Carolina. And then you insert him into the lineup as a starter. And he's giving you, I want to say eighth best grade among inside linebackers. I could be pulling that out of my ass, but the, the truth is the, the, I mean, the takeaway here is he's giving you more than what you expected and he's performing a hell of a lot better than Nate Stupar. Um, 
So I can, I can imagine a scenario where, you know, he gives you great depth. No, either way you slice it, any way you slice it. I mean, you have Olga Tree is going to be a starter and, and uh, Ryan Connolly should be your other starter. But the ability to cycle in Mayo is, is, is a nice little insurance policy, especially if Connolly is going to be a Sean Lee who's like constantly getting hurt. Hopefully that's not the case. Um, and I cannot believe I have not heard more about this. So it makes me think that there's something more to the story, but it's not Dion Buchanan. Dayon? Dayon Buchanan? Released by the Buccaneers after only playing seven snaps and through five weeks, six weeks. Um, he's only 27. He's six foot, 211. Kind of a linebacker, strong safety hybrid, a la Tay Davis. Giants are one of four teams interested in signing him. And, and he, he played for Betcher in Arizona for a few years and averaged like 80 plus tackles uh, before a drop off season last season. So curious as to why they haven't signed him yet makes me think there's like character issues or something else going on there that might get revealed later but um if there isn't i mean you got to give him a good hard look and maybe sign him um there was another linebacker who just got released zach brown by the the eagles (laughs) he made those comments about kirk cousins which you know giants fans I know we've had a pretty shitty, weird season this year. Got off to a rough start and then kind of come up and we were feeling good about ourselves. And then the past two weeks, we've been kind of moral victories, I guess. We're two and four, but we're one game out. The Cowboys looked like trash against the Jets, the winless Jets. And and, and, And maybe, you know, the Jets aren't who we thought they were with Sam Darnold back and Le'Veon Bell in the backfield and Robbie Anderson going deep. And it's like, maybe they have the pieces on offense and maybe the defense is gelling. So the jets could be a team to watch out for. I cannot believe I'm saying that after the kind of the stuff that they've rolled out in the field, but you know, they didn't have their starting quarterback or their backup. So, uh, Cowboys got a rude awakening. They're now three and three, uh, losers of three straight. And now they got, I think they got to face the Philly on Sunday night, which that should be a fun game to watch. Uh, I'm almost more excited about the Eagles Cowboys game than I am the Giants Cardinals game. Um, and the Eagles are three and three after getting uh, a smoked by the Vikings and they did get smoked. I mean, yeah, they came into with within, did they come within a touchdown? Maybe 10 points, but you know, and I know we got gashed and Kirk cousins diced us up, but not like that he did to the Eagles, dude. I mean, he was dropping bombs left and right. So, but Zach Brown, the Eagles linebacker who like used to play with cousins in Washington said that like cousins would be the reason why the the Vikings won't win. And of course he had a cousins had a stellar game. So maybe that's why they released Brown. Another linebacker to maybe take a look at. Um, but the Vikings, you know, I, I watched uh, Barstool Sports uh, sp- Advisors with uh, Big Cat, El Prez, and um, Stu Finer. And Stu Finer saying, like, you know, take it for what it's worth um, from a raving lunatic. But Stu Finer says the Vikings are a Super Bowl team. And I don't know. I mean, if they can just figure out the NFC North, they have a good chance of you know, definitely making the postseason. And if cousins turns the corner and this is the cousins we can expect, 
I don't know. Could could be. I mean, the, you know, we forget the Vikings went to the friggin', you know, NFC championship with Case Keenum. Isn't Kirk Cousins a little bit better than Case Keenum? I don't know. Especially now that Dalvin Cook is like at 100% and running the ball like a, a goddamn animal. So, so we're, I think we're in an okay spot. You know, I think we get all our offensive weapons back. They stay healthy. Our defense looks like they're finally putting some stuff together. I mean, they only gave up 21 points last night. And if you, and if you really feeling generous, they only really gave up 14 points last, uh, against the Patriots in week six, that last touchdown. I mean, like, that's like them being like, uh, come on offense. You know, we've done, we've been on the field forever tonight. I think the Patriots had like 40 minutes in time of possession, which is like crazy. Um, and I think the same thing happened maybe last week where it's like, they're just on the field too much. You know, it's one of those things like if they if you put them out there for the average amount of snaps or average amount of time of possession, the Giants defense is going to do their part. But you exceed it and you go beyond your bandwidth or whatever. And yeah, they're going to they're going to cave. They're going to crumble. So, um, you know, what was it a fumble return for a touchdown, a block punt for a touchdown, which Nate Stupar. You know, why are you in the, why are you in the fucking punter's cleat, dude? Do not be that far back. Um, so that's 14 points. And then, you know, the last touchdown was kind of just like, well, this, our offense isn't doing shit. We give up, <laughs> but you know, the defense is, is yeah, they give up a lot of yards, but they hold teams to field goals or they stop them on goal line stands or they get turnovers on downs. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, opposing coaches think they can go for it and win and they're not winning most of those battles. Yeah, we give up a lot of yards. We get gashed a lot. Definitely need to cut down on that. Um, but I think the more playing time David Mayo gets, the better he's going to become. He's already looking pretty good. Alec Ogletree, he stays healthy. He's playing probably the best football he's played, at least in a Giants uniform. Your outside linebackers, Marcus Golden, is he's averaging a sack per game. Uh, Dexter Lawrence is a beast. You have some players on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you just need your coverage to step up. So... And here's an encouraging sign about where they could get help. Sam Beal can return to practice now. He was placed on IR uh, at the beginning of the season, which means uh, he w was not allowed to practice for the six weeks, first six weeks of the season, which that's done and gone. So he can practice now, and then he cannot play in a game until week nine. So if he looks healthy and doesn't get hurt again in practice, week nine. We got Sam Beal back, the guy, the legend of Sam Beal, the guy that everyone's been talking about. They're so excited and, and psyched out of their minds about this guy that we picked up in the supplemental draft who could be a steal, a gem, a diamond in the rough that we had to sacrifice a 2019 pick for, I think third round pick for. So there's a lot of expectations for Sam Beal. He hasn't seen a damn snap in any meaningful game, preseason or for regular season, whatever, in pads. 
but this could be the guy that helps us out in terms of uh, coverage because I know Grant Haley has struggled. Uh, Jenkins has struggled to a certain degree. Baker has struggled. So he can provide you that much needed depth either in the slot or if uh, we end up trading Jenkins, uh, he could start opposite Baker. The issue is uh, with Beal that each NFL team is permitted to activate uh, only two players after eight weeks on the injured reserve. And right now our options are Kareem Martin and Russell Shepard. It's like Russell Shepard can have a big catch here or there. Kareem Martin was supposed to be this huge free agent acquisition acquisition that was supposed to help us, you know, um, help us uh, out with the transfer to Betcher, help out with that transition. And uh, he's been kind of just a major disappointment. So out of the three, it's like you've seen what you can get from Shepard. Hmm. You've seen what you can get with Kareem. Hmm. You haven't seen what you can get from Sam Beal. So I'm, I'm more inclined to like activate Sam Beal and Russell Shepard because your outside linebacker, outside linebacker crew seems pretty set with Marcus Golden, Lorenzo Carter, and uh, O'Shane Zimenez. OBJ is frustrated with not getting the ball in Cleveland. Now, I think this was before their game with Seattle because he had something like I don't know, uh, nine targets and six catches, or was it nine catches on like 12 targets? So they definitely threw him the ball more against uh, Seattle, and he had 100-plus yards receiving. Although that one catch that everyone was like creaming their jeans over, where it's kind of deep on the right sideline, might have been out or, or, or corner pattern, that's not a catch. I don't know how that's a catch. He went up, he got one foot down, and his helmet landed out of bounds incomplete i mean good job great effort but that's not a catch so um but yeah i mean what are you gonna do and now there are rumors swirling around that uh that uh their gm dorsey is gonna trade him and dorsey said that's fake news but it's like you kind of see what you're dealing with here Try to get the ball to OBJ. You force the ball to OBJ. You ignore some other patterns or open receivers. Or you try to spread the wealth, and then he's saying he's not getting the ball enough. So tough, 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 tough <laughs> out there in Cleveland. Oh, boy. Um, but the trade deadline is October 29th. It's the end of October. And the Giants have some pieces that they could deal and maybe they should deal. I know the Cardinals are a week seven opponent are listening to trade calls for Patrick Peterson. That's a guy who I would love to trade for. I, I mean, I probably won't happen. I think Arizona said they, they're not going to trade him, but he's, you know, he hasn't, he hadn't missed a game since what? 2011. Hasn't missed a game. Hasn't missed a start in his entire career until this year when he was suspended first six games for PEDs. And, of course, he makes his return against us. Awesome. Uh, but he's made the Pro Bowl every season of his career. Three-time All-Pro, 29 years old. He requested a trade back in October of last year. And he's got one more year left on his contract with a cap hit of around $13 million, um, but a dead cap of less than seven hundred. Janoris Jenkins is 
making more than Patrick Peterson. I mean, you know, that's enough for me. You look at, you look at, you look up Patrick Peterson on pro football reference. And then you look up Janoris Jenkins on pro football reference. And you're like, what the actual fuck is going on? How the hell is Janoris Jenkins making more than Patrick Peterson? So if we can get Patrick Peterson, I don't know who the hell we trade to get him, but we should. Cause that would be huge. So um, Matt Lombardo of NJ.com thinks that uh, Janoris Jenkins could go to the Kansas City Chiefs. I know the Chiefs were looking at Jalen Ramsey for a while, but if that falls through, I think Jenkins could be could be a nice fit fit for them. Uh, he's uh, Jenkins is allowing fifteen point four yards per reception. And according to Pro Football Focus, opposing quarterbacks have a ninety nine point five passer rating when targeting him. I mean, I mean, it's got to be Betcher's system, right? It has to be Betcher's system. That's the only thing I can think of. He's just not a fit. And yeah, you know, so I would, I would love to, I think it's time to move on, even though he's provided some electric plays during his Giants career, you can, I mean, you'd have to say that he's definitely disappointed you. I mean, he had the pick against New England, but that's an errant throw affected by the wind. That's an easy interception for any cornerback. So I don't know that that's like, we're going to give him a round of a standing ovation for that interception. And then he allowed that huge pass to uh, Edelman. Edelman made an, uh, you know, an amazing catch, diving catch, but at the same time, it's like, it seems like that's happening to Janoris every week, just allowing big play after big play. This is a crazy one. Golden Tate to the 49ers. So, you know, we didn't sign him to trade him. This is like the ultimate definition of that. I mean, we've only seen Golden in two games and now we're willing to, to trade him. Um, but apparently the receiving core for the 49ers has combined for just 36 catches and 481 yards and three touchdowns, which is not great through six weeks. And Lombardo saying that Tate could walk into San Fran and be the number three receiver behind Marquis Goodwin and rookie Debo Samuel. I mean, Tate's not even the three in the Giants. I don't know about that, but something to look out for. I just can't see us, especially knowing Sterling Shepard's fragile nature at this point i just can't see us like giving up on golden tate that quickly he claims the team knew about his peds when they signed him if they trade him after two or three weeks after you know what essentially maybe less than a month three four games then that's like they must have been super pissed (laughs) about the ped thing but if he plays like he played against New England and we get Shepard back, then we've got ourselves a nice little operation. Crazy that it, maybe it was it was just that one week of rust that he needed to knock a, knock off and get that in-game action to kind of just clear the cobwebs and now he can he can get back up to speed. The number 30 trade candidate, Rhett Ellison to the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mind it. Blocking tight end, um, I can't believe that the the Giants would spend that much on a blocking tight end. And uh, you know, 
it's tough because blocking tight ends don't get a lot of the glory, you know. Um, but I'd like to think that he's contributed to a lot of big runs and that, you know, we'll definitely need to fill a void should he be gone. But making a lot of money for a blocking tight end who doesn't make a lot of grabs or catches. I think last week was like one of his best games. He had three catches for like 30 yards or something like that. In terms of players that maybe we should trade for that could be candidates. I mean, there's Tremaine Johnson, um, corner for the Jets. He's been pretty average. Um, his deal runs to 2022. Patrick Peterson, who I mentioned, would be. Oh, that would be huge if we could trade for him. Mohamed Sanu, who I've always thought should be a giant just because he's, I think he's from New Jersey and he went to Rutgers. It's like, how are you not in a Giants uniform? Every time he became a free agent or was available, I thought they should have gone out and signed him because it just seems like a dependable receiver that it just will catch the ball if you put it in the vicinity. You know, and the Falcons have Ridley and, uh, and Jones, so we're kind of light in the receiver position as it is. I say, give him a shot. Uh, another Falcon, Desmond Trufant. Uh, he's having a bit of a down year after back-to-back solid campaigns, but still a viable asset. No guarantees after 29. He's making around six or 7 million. William Jackson, a Bengals corner. He's uh, every down back on his rookie contract. Salary spikes to $10 million in a fifth-year option, though. Manuel Sanders, Broncos wide receiver. He just had a knee injury, though. Chris Harris, corner for Denver. Denver's kind of turning around, so I don't know that Denver's going to be in full sell mode, though. I mean, huge win against the Titans. Shut out the Titans. Big win against the Chargers. So I think even... After their kind of slow start, they might be a force to be reckoned with. There's no way we'll trade for Jalen Ramsey. I mean, I don't, I don't know why I keep mentioning him. It, it just seems like it's not worth the hassle. Trent Williams is interesting. Uh, tackle for the Redskins. He puts up pretty similar numbers to Nate Solder, but yet is making like way less, making seven mil, and he's not currently in a holdout. He's been a pro bowler the last seven seasons and is 31 years old. So might be something to consider if if you don't want to continue investing in Remmers. But would Trent Williams play right tackle? Or would you move Nate Soldier to the right tackle and have Trent Williams at left tackle? Something to stew on. Something to put in the old bean and marinate. Devontae Parker, wide receiver for the Dolphins. Making around 2.6 mil. Yeah, I mm, doesn't sound great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are the candidates. Obviously, wide, rec- wide receiver is a consideration. Linebacker is a consideration. Possibly O-line, but definitely a corner. Um, you know, if they do decide to trade Alec Ogletree and Janoris Jenkins, you know, you got to look to fill that spot because we're not exactly deep in those positions. Um so I'd say Jenkins goes before Ogletree goes. 
of the Giants that are going to be free agents in 2020, um, Marcus Golden, I think you definitely resign him. Mike Remmers, I mean, he's, he's given you enough. I think he's given you enough to justify another year or two. Michael Thomas, definitely resign. Russell Shepard, I don't know. I would say, gun to my head, pass. Cody Latimer, pass. I mean, Cody Latimer. Cody Latimer, dude. Zero catches. Zero catches. You cannot do that. I mean, and maybe that's Daniel Jones' fault. Maybe 100% of the blame doesn't go on Cody Latimer. Maybe some of the blame goes on Shermer for not calling plays to Cody Latimer. How do you not? I mean, one target, I think he had. I think he had one target. Crazy. You signed this guy. He's earning $1.5 million, 28 years old, and you just didn't use him at all. That can't be a good sign. That cannot be a good sign. I mean, we didn't have anyone. We had Golden Tate, Darius Slayton, Rhett Ellison are your other targets in terms of receivers. And you got one target and you got zero catches. That could be the final nail in the coffin for Cody Latimer. And I know the Patriots are like the best defense in the league. But if Cody Latimer comes out against the Cardinals and still gets zero catches, I mean, later, dude, later. You can't have that. And I know, and, and he is a great, he is a great blocker. So I give him that, but like, we still need, we need someone who can catch the ball or we can throw to. I saw some kind of stat that was like the yards of separation, average yards of separation that the Giants receivers got on Thursday night against the Patriots was like the smallest in history or something like that. It was like one to 1.5 yards of separation on average uh, for Giants wide receivers against the Patriots. So, you know, Danny didn't have a lot to work with to start out with. He wasn't, his receivers are not getting open. You know, people criticize Daniel for throwing the ball into tight windows, but that's also why we loved him and that's why we like him and and why he's playing and Eli's not because Eli would not refuse to make those throws. So sometimes those throws are completed. Sometimes they're incomplete and sometimes they're intercepted, but you're giving your receiver a chance. And I think that's the difference. And that's not something that we should um, poo poo. David Mayo will be a, a free agent. <laughs> next year and i think we got to sign him re-sign him he's only 27 he's provided some stability to the inside linebacker position Corey coleman is going to be a tough decision he's 26 uh he's making around seven hundred twenty thousand dollars. i think you know and people have uh, reporters have said that he is has uh, an incredible outlook he's taking re- rehab very seriously and that he's going to come back with a, with, with a full force and he's going to try and make it, you know. So I say you give him that one last shot contract and say, prove it, you know. John Halapio, I think you definitely resign him. He's 29. Rosas is 25. Yes. Elijah Penny, yes. He's only 27. Riley Dixon is only 27. Yes. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, Eli, of course, is going to be a free agent, and uh, don't think he's going to back. Um, twenty twenty one free agents: Janoris Jenkins, Rhett Ellison, Kareem Martin, Antoine Bethea, Dalvin Tomlinson. I say the only one that you resign is Dalvin Tomlinson, unless Martin and Bethea, unless Martin comes back and is like on another planet on another level and just is like playing out of his mind. Great. But as of right now, no, I mean, we signed into a three year, $5 million, uh, $50 million contract and he hasn't done dick Antoine Bethea. I mean that I always viewed Antoine Bethea as a stopgap until they find their, you know, safety of the future to, to pair up with Jabril peppers. And so far, I don't think the reviews on Bethea have been that great. So but it is, he has a nice little insurance policy, I think. And that's that. I mean, in terms of the Week 7 game against the Cardinals, you know, as I said, Patrick Peterson's coming back, so he's going to present a challenge. He's going to automatically improve that defense. The defense is pretty garbage. I think they're like a bottom five defense uh, all around. So if we do get Barkley and Engram and Shep back, we should be able to put up some points and some yards. Our defense. I think looked really good against New England. I know New England had some injuries up front. They had Marshall Newhouse playing left tackle and starting left tackle. So you almost think, well, maybe we should have done a little more damage. But um, the defense is showing signs. I I know they're giving up a ton of yards. I get it. But they're not giving up a ton of points, per se. And they're limiting the damage. So I think that they can come out against the Cardinals and present some interesting looks to Kyler Murray. They have got to have Ogletree spy uh or maybe michael thomas someone they need to put a spy on kyler murray so when he starts moving around he doesn't pick up big chunks of yard on the ground but i think we're in a good spot we're okay you know it's not panic mode i know moral victories don't count but you have to feel um much better about your prospects now that you're getting more of your offensive uh, weapons back. The defense looks like they're coming together and maybe we can, you know, Cowboys, Lions, Cardinals, Cowboys, Lions, Jets. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, before the season started, I think we were thinking, you know, win against the Cardinals, loss to the Lions, maybe a win against the Cowboys win against the Jets. We're looking at like maybe three and one. And, you know, I thought that we could still go three and one after the Patriots game. I don't know what we're getting with the Jets anymore. (laughs) I don't know what to expect with the Jets. So that's going to be a battle going into Detroit. I mean, Detroit stuck it to green Bay in green Bay probably should have won that game if it weren't for the referees. So we could very easily go one and three. We could go in four, but um each week is going to be a fucking battle and i mean if we come out of this 4-0 into the bye 6 and 4 in the bye would be huge if we go 5 and 5 at the bye if we go 4 and 6 i don't know i think you 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 might have to uh pack up shop and start dealing some players um so very interesting stretch before the trade deadline. Very interesting. But two weeks of the trade deadline, you know, if you win, if you win against Arizona and Detroit, 
do you reconsider dealing Ogletree and Jenkins or at least Jenkins? I think you should deal Jenkins regardless and start playing Julian Love and Corey Ballantyne. Let's start getting this talent on the field and see what you got. All right. That's that's it for this episode. I'll just wrap up by saying the Devils suck. Holy macaroni. We have not won a game. We were up on the Panthers. We lose 6-4. We were up 4-0. We lost 6-4. We have not won a game. We're one of, I think we're the only team that has not won a game yet. So what what started off being so hopeful with the Devils and like we're going to the playoffs and we're going to win in the first round and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nope, <laughs> we're winless. And I'm, I'm, the coach has got to be gone if they continue on this path. But that's it for this week's show another long ass show um hit me up on twitter instagram youtube real cinch uh call the hotline 862-BIT-1986 and we'll see you next week adios muchachos